Don't you say boys? I dare you. Dare me? I dare you. I dare you. I dare you. Just a little hello. A little hello. Hi, guys. How you doing? Oh my goodness. Oh, oh nice shot. Nice comeback. Nice shot. Oh. <laughs> wow. Hey, come back. Get him again. Get him. Ah. Woo. Woo. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine to February of 1997 for Volume 1 of this month's show. We've got four shows for you this month. Volume number 2 takes us to the WWF looking at In Your House Final 4. Volume 3 to ECW looking at Cyberslam and Volume number 4 takes us on our latest trip to the UFC looking at UFC 12. We're here in number 1 to discuss WCW and Super Bowl. I'm being joined firstly by Brian Barrera. Brian, hello. What's going on, man? Uh, all very good, and in, in a, uh, I was going to say all-American show, I suppose I'm not, um, but our two guests are uh, Eric Landstrom. Eric, good uh, good afternoon. Happy to be here to root for my hometown man, Roddy Piper. That's the one, that's the one. Eric, kick us off with the news. Sure. 
Randy Savage turned heel, joining the NWO after costing Roddy Piper his world title match at Super Brawl against Hulk Hogan. Piper actually won the match cleanly, once again making Hogan pass out in the sleeper. But Savage moved Hogan's foot under the bottom rope, causing a restart. After this, he handed Hogan a set of knucks, and Hogan leveled Piper to retain his title. Piper had spent the seven days prior to the show training in, of all places, Alcatraz. WCW, could debut a new two-hour live TV show as soon as April after TBS formally requested a new show in a very similar style and setup to Nitro? It seems like the network is currently much more keen than WCW at the move, but WCW should at least be able to get the show funded by TBS. Details are unclear at this stage regarding what night the show will be on, and the mood at WCW was described in the Wrestling Observer as, how the hell are we going to pull this off? It comes at a time when WWF Monday Night Raw moved to two hours on Mondays, now once again running head-to-head with Nitro for two hours. Super Brawl was an otherwise very solid pay-per-view outing, with the show at the Cow Palace in San Francisco selling out nearly two weeks in advance. The Giant defeated the Outsiders in a handicap match for the tag titles after Lex Luger came out to join him, although Eric Bischoff reversed the decision the next night, of course. Chris Benoit defeated the Taskmaster in what was essentially a mixed tag involving Woman and Miss Jacqueline. That concluded with Benoit, Taskmaster, and Jacqueline being taken to hospital. Six defeated Dean Malenko to win the Cruiserweight title after interference from Eddie Guerrero, and Prince Ayukea retained his TV title over Rey Mysterio. There were also wins for Diamond Dallas Page, Eddie Guerrero, The Public Enemy, Jeff Jarrett, and the team of Conan, LaParca, and Viano Four. A bizarre angle that involved the Steiner brothers received so many complaints that WCW all but gave up on the angle by the following week. By February 17th, Tony Schiavone said that the Steiners had been injured in what was believed to be a car accident. After Kevin Nash volunteered the footage, WCW aired a handheld black and white tape of Nash Hall at six getting into a car chase with the Steiners. The segment ended a well-disguised jump cut and a stunt car being flipped on the side of the road the footage leaving a little doubt that Nash, at the wheel, was guilty. The car chase probably wasn't even the most bizarre moment of the month, as Kevin Sullivan cut a bewildering shoot promo on Nitro on February 10th. As part of the storyline with Chris Benoit, Sullivan referenced an actual phone call with Paul E., how he was part of the reigning success of Nitro, and even his mentor, Jim Barnett. Like most things, the story seems to be aimed at few people at the few people in the know, although it's said that the three are putting in so much effort to work the boys that it's causing resentment. It's gone so far that Sullivan and Nancy aren't even together anymore, but they are political allies. Turner is planning a big advertising campaign in an attempt to extend WCW's reach. Of note is that, of note is that the three men featured are Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, and Rey Mysterio Jr., the NWO hotline did not do well, doing as much business in an entire month as the WCW hotline would do in a day. And speaking of hotlines, there's an ongoing lawsuit between the WWF and WCW over Mark Madden's hotlines and whether he has journalistic protection. It's said that Madden has a right to shield his sources if it is believed that he is acting journalistically, but if he doesn't, then he may be intentionally trying to mislead. 
And a reminder that we are on Patreon for five bucks a month. You can get access, early access to shows like these and uh, and others. Or if you just want to say thank you for our contributions to your podcasting month, you can find out more information on patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20RS on the, in the podcast description or on our website. Uh, on to the ratings for the month as Nitro dominated once again, or the overall figures have been clipped compared to recent months, with Raw now being two hours every week running up against it. On February the 3rd, Nitro did a 3.1 to Raw's 2.6. February 10th, Raw was preempted and Nitro did a big 3.8. The night following In Your House on February 17th, Nitro did a 2.9 to Raw's 2.1. And the night after Super Raw on February 24th, Nitro did a 3.0 to Raw's 2.5. We start the month hot with NWO music welcoming Hollywood Hogan. Tony and Larry tell us Piper will be here. Hogan calls Piper the crippled kid and says he'll defend his title and win, just like last time. Ray Mendoza Jr. is out to face the Ultimo Dragon. Sonny Ono celebrates and we get a dragon suplex for the three. Billy Kidman comes close to an upset over Glacier, but a missed top rope something into a standing psychic gives Glacier the win. Six and DBRC plug the new NWO denim jacket for just 80 bucks. Yes, that's 8-0. Ice Train debuts a new singlet that makes him look even bigger than before as LaParka tries his best to match him in the muscle mass stakes. Train hits a standing splash for the win. Teddy Long decided to rebrand from Peanut Head to The Godfather. Mean Gene brings out the horseman as, quote, this is the only show on Monday night. Benoit says they've refound their perspective. Woman says Miss Jacqueline's been left with her seconds. No, Michaels get as warm as a reception as ever. Flair does flair and calls devil. Shorty in reference to Sullivan. The first hour main event between the Steiners and the Heat ends in a no contest after the face of fear and the public enemy run in to have the match thrown out. Shivoni stays for hour number two, flanked by Heenan and Tanay. Dean Malenko goes surprisingly long with Mykinos, who actually keeps up half well. Malenko wins with a small package, but without realising, Six comes through the crowd and makes off with Malenko's title belt. Lee Marshall takes great pride in telling Bobby and Tony about the Groundhog festivities with a sly dig at Brain, getting a giggle out of Tanay. Hey, did you guys hear what happened here yesterday in Florida? No, what, what was that? It was, it was, it was Ground Weasel Day. Yeah. Punxsutawney Bobby uh, stuck his head out of his condo, saw a shadow, so we're going to have six more weeks of bad taste. <laughs> That's your 1-800-COLLECT road report from Jacksonville. I'm Lee Marshall for 1-800-COLLECT. All right, Lee, and of course, next I week. I hate him. <laughs> next week. What a miserable human being. Sullivan bemoans his loss of woman. Jimmy Hart tells us how he hates women in wrestling. Welcome to 1997, folks. Conan says he'll take out Benoit, and Jacqueline says it's the gym, not surgery, that got her a body. She's certainly been working the pecs hard. Dallas Page literally goes seconds with Renegade, hitting a cutter from the second rope. The outsiders are out in the aisle with lead pipes to provoke a fearful-looking diamond. Sting and Savage appear in the rafters, and Hall and Nash back away. Super Callow and Alex Wright have a decent match with decent time. Das Wunderkid winning with a missile drop kick from the top. Conan and Benoit slug it out in the semi-main. Conan getting a surprising amount of offence, but it descends into a very strange woman and Jacqueline angle, with Miss Jacqueline looking under the ring for a chair that she takes an age to find, for not finding one. I think DVP ended up nicking it in the earlier segment. Mongo and Jarrett have a quick main event, Deborah holding Steve back on the outside, forcing a count-out. We finish with Piper out with his son Colt. He says he already beat Hogan and it's time he was a dad. 
Hogan arrives, Piper backs off, calling him Terry. Hogan tells him to get on his knees. They trade words at who's the true icon. An emotional Piper ushers Colt to the back for battering Hogan and holding the belt as we go off the air. We start February 10th with a titleless Dean Malenko offering six, a lesson in wrestling and a lesson in respect. Malenko and Guerrero go criminally short but still manage a brief taste of their fares from early last year. They trade near falls as the 1-2-3 Cat Burglar comes out to try and get another belt but Eddie cuts him off at the cost of a count-out loss. Guy and Dallas Page rise in jeans and a t-shirt with a steel chair to talk about being a marked man. Savage and Sting make their way through the crowd and we see an NWO suck sign for the first time. Sting does his usual back shtick, Diamond stands tall and they both leave. Conan gets a quick win over Bobby Eaton as Lex makes his way to the ring. He gets cut off by Eric Bischoff. He questions Lex's medical clearance and tells him he's out for the foreseeable future. Giant arrives and Bischoff scarpers. Ron Powers gets down by the chokeslam and Giant wins. Post-match, Tanay talks to Giant about Luger and the Outsiders. Luger joins him and Giant says he'll beat Hall and Nash at Super Brawl alone. On the back, out back, the NWR arrive in a black limo. Hall stealing the show as always. The Steiners get a win over High Voltage with the Doomsday Dog. The NWO then take over the desk. Randy Anderson arrives with his wife and kids in tow asking for his job back. Bischoff laps up his authority and says he can get back in if he fights Nick Patrick. Randy's kids are just the cutest and he accepts. The Outsiders start Hour 2 with debuting of Team Extreme. Post-match, Six channels his inner Oakland to interview the winners. Nash again gets in some bother with adjectives, mixing up a dictionary and a thesaurus. Nice try, Kev. Rey Mysterio gets a shot at Steve Regal's TV title. Regal is stalling best throughout. Funnily enough, we end with a time limit draw just as Mysterio had him in a pinning predicament. Kevin Sullivan takes on a debuting Maverick Wild, who seems to be neither. Miss Jacqueline gets in some strong offence on the outside. A lariat, a slam and a snapmare. She's got more chops than flair. Taskmaster win with the win before Jacqueline gets in some more shots. Post-match, Sullivan cuts a genuinely bizarre promo that we'll listen to in a minute. Name-dropping Paulie, Jim Barnett, Nancy and a lighthouse. Hugh Morris adds to Alex Wright's woes, winning quick with a moonsault. Ben Wilder and McMichael get the better of Double J and Charvo Jr. Our Anderson arrives post-match to be the voice of reason. Flair owns the screen as always. Ben Wilder again shows his improvements on the mic and tells Sullivan to stick it. That Michaels have a quick domestic about Jarrett to the disgust of the rest. We close out the night with a Piper and Hogan split screen. Piper live in the ring and Hogan quote live from Hollywood in black and white. Piper says Colt told him to go get him dad. Hogan brags about his multi-million dollar movie contracts. It's beginning to look a lot like Super Brawl. Thanks very much, Tony. February 23rd at Super Brawl, the Taskmaster. This is a wrestling interview. I'm talking to two people. Nancy, Chris, last night I was laying in my bed alone. 11.20, Nancy. And the second closest person in your life called me, Paulie. And he told me, how's everything going? And I said, the deal's gone south. And he said to me, listen, you've worked too hard. You've driven up and down the road for years. 
You've bled to lose this job. This is the number one watch cable program in the United States, and I'm part of it. A big part of it. And he told me no sides did he take because he happens to think a lot of you. But he said, do your job. Then he said to me, what would your mentor, Jim Barnett, say to you? He said, ha, do your job. Then he said, what would your tag team partner and former best friend, don't wrap me up, shut up. He said, what would your best friend say to you, Mark Lewin? One thing leads to another, but do your job. What would Tim Curtis say to you? You've been through a lot of invasions, but do your job. Benoit, when you first came to WCW, you asked me if she was really that pure. She lived with me for 12 years and picked up some bad habits. Nancy, when you were on the stairs of the lighthouse and you said, I do, you knew it wasn't no better roses. Let me tell you something right now. The difference between Nancy, Jacqueline, and myself is you come from a community and we come from the neighborhood. And the deal is this simple. I can go back to Second and Ridgewood and get anything I want at any time. And Nancy, you've been bluffing people for 10 years saying that you're tough. You got no main charge ever against you. You never pulled out an eye and you never bit anybody's nose off. It was the guy you live with that did all that stuff. So I'm going to tell you this. In San Francisco, the first night you was in, you tucked something under your skirt because you were intimidated. I'm going to make it real clear. In San Francisco, when she whips you, if you reach for anything under that dress, you got to pay to me because this is the most important person in my life now. Three segments to review before we get to the pay-per-view that I think all would have been in most other months in the last six months, probably the most significant and noteworthy thing that would have happened on on Nitro uh, in, in any given month. Uh, we'll approach them chronologically, and I think to a point we're going to approach them in terms of just wackiness order. Um, although it does say a lot that Roddy Piper in Alcatraz is number three in that list. Um, but we start on February the 10th uh, with a promo involving Kevin Sullivan, a.k.a. the Taskmaster. So Mike Tenay gets Sullivan on the ramp after a match. Um, and Sullivan says, this isn't a pro wrestling interview, to which my reaction was, well, OK, let's just go to a commercial and then we'll come back and watch something else. Um, but the camera instead chose to frame Sullivan's face in a way that completely filled your field of view. And then <laughs> Sullivan for the next two, three minutes cut just, yeah, you would have just heard it, the most bizarre promo. I mean, I, I kind of felt like a, one of those like police detective shows you've watched where you get in the big control room and I've got like Sullivan's face in the middle of a whiteboard and then lines kind of drawn off in various different directions, <laughs> trying to link all of this stuff together. I mean, Brian, like this, 
you know, it's it's Sullivan. They're trying to do what they they're trying to replicate what they did with Brian Pillman last year. They're trying to create this kind of shooty storyline with the idea that we're working everyone. And I think in the idea that in their in their own little kind of bubble, in their own little echo chamber, if they're working the boys, they're working the fans. But Brian, this made no fucking sense. My favorite part is how. Okerlund refers to him as Taskmaster, and he goes, no, 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 it's Kevin. It's Kevin tonight. It's Kevin. And I'm like, all right, well, Kevin, you know, this is what's going on. And he tried to set up this idea of him being part of a neighborhood that, you know, people like me, me and Jackie, we come from a neighborhood, but you come from a community, referring to woman, and how woman tries to pull him out of the gutter and basically bring him to high society, but – that's not what he wanted, so that's what the basis of this fight is. But then, like you said, he goes into this weird shoot side of things where it just was bizarre. It really was just a strange thing to watch. All right. You know, I read the sheets. I watch the shows. I have a pretty good understanding of the history of, of uh, WCW, of Kevin Sullivan's career. And I, I couldn't follow him. So God help the average casual Nitro viewer turning this on and thinking, what the hell is he talking about? He's not even speaking English. And, and Bob, I can't, I can't better summarize what you and Brian have said other than, and then Jackie comes on and is not a talker. Um, stumbles over her line, says neighborhood about 50 times in 30 seconds, and then the segment just ends, and it's as bizarre of an end as it was to start and as it was in the middle. I, I had a call with Paul Lee, obviously Paul Heyman, and this was apparently was a, a real call, which kind of yeah. When you consider what's happening in well, in Volume Two in the WWF this month, um, you know Paul Heyman's had had more uh, more scope on on nationwide television in the last three weeks than he has in about the last four years. Um, but a very real phone call that he had with Paul Heyman, and it's like, well, but Paul, who's like I, I'm trying to approach this from the guy that doesn't know, and this is most people, right? There's millions of people watching Nitro on a Monday night. I'm gonna guess that you know, okay, I know Paul Lee has existed in WCW. He he exists, right? So it's not. It wouldn't be ridiculous to say at least half of the people. Well, maybe that's a lot, but it wouldn't be ridiculous to say that that you, you wouldn't be able to. Or you, you shouldn't expect your audience to know who that was. But Paulie has not existed in WCW's universe in four years. So why having a call with him, other than he was famous for carrying around a gigantic mobile phone, why having that be relevant, I don't know. And then he says, well, you know, Paulie told me you're, you're part of the big rating success on Monday night, which, you know, theoretically, like they're, you know, even in Storyline, they're all part of it. They're all wrestlers on a show. But he's also referencing the fact that he's the booker, which makes no sense because <laughs> this is wrestling and, you know, it's all meant to be spontaneous. And, you know, theoretically, matchmakers can exist, but bookers can't. And certainly in a, in a world where a matchmaker and wrestling existed, the matchmaker would not be a part of the active roster. So there's that. And then he talks about, you know, Nancy, who, you know, they... <laughs> they I, I, I kind of feel like they've they've gone so hard with this that I kind of feel like most people probably now have filled in the gaps. Nancy is woman, even though they've never explicitly said it. 
But it's like, you know, Nancy talking about how they used to be married, and the, the, you know, that's a real-life marriage, nothing to do with storyline. And then he talks about, you know, when they when they proposed and how you knew it wasn't going to be a bed of roses and some weird thing about her lifting up her skirt when they were in a hotel room or something like that. And I, <laughs> I mean... Eric, like, isn't isn't the big point that we can't follow? Isn't that the whole problem? Is that if you know, I watch Shane Douglas on a monthly basis, and Douglas knows his audience in ECW to a point, and to an extent, he can make these kind of insider references and knowing that most of them are going to know what they're on about. But if it was a case of it's a shoot, but it's an obvious shoot, if you know what you're on about, you're like, well, it's probably counterproductive, but you know what the hey, it's like, what? Who benefits from this? I don't think anybody does other than, than Chris Benoit only because he's allowed to, you know, feature his, you know, his skills on, on pay-per-view month after month. But no, this is, this is just too, this is too inside. It's, it's too meta. I, I appreciate, uh, kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit. WWF Livewire in its first couple weeks on the air was kind of a good example of pushing that line without going over, uh, over it. And this is just, this is so far over the line, you can't even see the damn line anymore. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody benefits from this, and it really feels like Sullivan just trying to book his dream storyline as his career is winding down. And I think that's what's, what's happening, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you were a booker and you were into doing shoots, you'd probably do something involving your wife. And you'd probably also pick out the best wrestler on the roster to feud with. Yeah, um, yeah. We'll talk about that in a bit. Brian is is you know. I guess the question is is that we've been critical of this storyline from a from an execution standpoint pretty much since it started. That they've they've assumed far too much and presented far too little. But you know, as we're going to come to when we get to the show itself, is this feud over? in spite of the failings, or are we kind of at the point now where the failings don't really matter? I, I don't think it matters. I think that the emotion is there that you have a guy that lost his wife to Benoit and that's how they're going to play it out. I think that the actual details of them going back and forth, a lot of that doesn't make sense. But when you really get down to the core of it, it's just, you took my wife, I have someone new, he doesn't love you anymore, and now I'm going to beat your ass at the pay-per-view. And Jackie, at one point, she even talks about why she's even with Kevin, which I thought was funny. She talked about how she, you know, she's from the neighborhood, not the community, and how she's getting the fights and she's fought men and women. And the reason why she's with Kevin is because Kevin is the only one that could beat her. And it just kind of sh- scratched my head there for a second. Like, oh, all right, cool. That's why this is happening, I guess. You know, Kevin Sullivan can beat up Jackie. That's why she respects him. That's kind of gross. But all right, let's go on to the pay-per-view. Yeah, we're going to talk about Piper in a bit. Like, it's <laughs> this, this isn't the only thing on on WCW that feels like it's over in spite of how it's, you know, the, the detail. Like, the NWO angle feels like that. Roddy Piper's promise all feel like that. Like, you know, it's like, fuck, if they wrote this well, they'd be doing brilliantly. As it is, they're doing really quite well with a lot of stuff with a lot of plot holes in. Um, but, yeah, I, I think as much as we've been critical and as much as they could have been a bit more transparent with the storyline, I get the feeling now if you've been watching for six months, you picked up the basics. And therefore, Sullivan cutting a pro that makes no sense might confuse you a bit, but it ultimately doesn't detract from your ability to be able to understand the storyline and be able to frame a, 
a, a match that they have. So in that sense, it's not too bad. But fucking hell, I mean, you know, like if if your priorities are completely wrong, if you're trying to work everyone so hard that you just fly over everyone's head, I think at that point you've got. We open up February the 17th with the NWO arriving in the parking lot in a cavalcade of black limos. Off camera we run into an unnamed member who's been downed. Rey Mysterio Jr. goes five minutes with Super Callow hitting a beautiful springboard corkscrew moonsault and wins with a Hurricane Rana roll up. Tony and Larry tell us we'll see Roddy Piper later from Alcatraz because well why not. Morris has McMichael beat with his moonsault but Deborah throws in the Halliburton briefcase and Steve wins. We had a sugary video last week from Piper and Colton's bit with Hogan for another promo from Malenko Warning 6. Dean beats Robbie Brookside who bears a remarkable resemblance to Stevie Richards from the Cloverleaf. Post-match 6 tells Malenko his respect died with Boris. We get a quote live shot from Alcatraz Island before the outsiders take over the desk. Hall name checks the Einsteiners and Nash gives Tony and Larry a tape to air. Rougeau and Ulay come out to face the public enemy, Rocco and Johnny, easily get the best reaction they've had since leaving ECW. Outside, Carly Lett gets laid out on the enemy's table, Rocco hits the rolling senton from inside, over the top, through the table, and Johnny gets the pinfall for the win. On the aisle, Gene interviews Paige, asking what he knows about the opening attack on Buffer Rogers. Diamond pleads the fifth and says he's only here to see Anderson and Patrick. Shivoni then somehow manages to forget what night WCW Saturday night airs. That actually happened. Oakland then get, gets a quick word from Lord Regal before his match with Prince Ayukaya. Mysterio comes out, distracts Regal, and Prince beats the Lord with a roll-up. Regal pulls some pantomime faces and the enemy and Teddy Long come out to celebrate with the new champion. Our number two starts with Nick Patrick and Randy Anderson. They actually build Pee-wee's amateur background, both are out in their rest gear. Patrick hams it up with the shadow boxing, but the ref hands Randy some tape brass knucks, and he gets the knockout blow for the win. Of course, out comes an Irish Bischoff, who fires both referees and drags out a comatose Patrick. Leo Marshall phones in his usual one-man party and does his usual weasel jokes at Brain. Benoit mauls Roadblock for the win, and we see the outsiders tape. They stalk the Steiners in their car and then run Rick and Scott off the road. They managed to cut a pretty seamless car roll in, which looks quite impressive. Oakland talks to Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan. Taskmaster manages to make slightly more sense this week, and even Hart does a good job. Sullivan t- this week takes on Doc Dean, protege of Robbie Brookside and Brian Dixon. Jackie getting in her usual breakdowns, and Sully wins. Eddie and Conan get some decent time for a decent match, but we get a DQ finish with a Dungeon of Doom running in. Jericho comes out to help Eddie before they face off Sunday. The horsemen are out to talk with Gene. Flair says they're reunited. Arn says what a difference some time makes that Michaels get their digs in at Jarrett and Jacqueline and Benoit owns Sullivan. Giant gets a handicap warm-up, beating Top Gun and Johnny Swinger in a few seconds. He then tags the jobbers with Hall and Nash. Luger and Oakland join Giant. Lex is out with medical clearance, but Bischoff comes out and says he's too late. We go to The Rock and hear from a manic piper. The story is now he's been staying there all week, or he will be. He actually nails this promo and talks about the differences between him and Hogan. 
We tip over briefly into a third hour, and in the main event, Jarrett has Jericho in the figure four, but Halliburton shots double J gets Lionheart the win. Hogan's out to close with Bischoff. They say he can lock himself away if he likes, but he can't touch Hogan's stuff. They get cut off with the arrival of Sting and Savage. Hogan runs through the list of towns and the two approach the ring, but then back away. Hogan continues his rambling and we lead into Super Bowls, so Sunday's Super Bowl 7. <laughs> Roddy Piper live from Alcatraz! <laughs> Oh, God, man. <laughs> Not even Taz does Alcatraz. <laughs> what am I doing? You know how hard I worked. Hogan, Hogan, you listening to me? You know how hard I worked. 28 years I fought. I fought to get a family. Did you ever wonder why I was on the street when I was 13? Did it ever cross your mind, Hogan? I've been dead inside. You know when you're dead inside? There's nothing you can do to a man to hurt him. Nothing there. I'm coming into the cow palace on the 23rd, dead inside. Why? Because of you, Mr. Spandex. You are the cheapest, most low-life piece of snake I have ever seen. Telling people lie that I'm hiding behind my little boy. You know, you know, let's get serious about this. Because I'm not doing no wrestling promo to dry and draw tickets. No, no. You know, you know what you do, Hogan? Remember, you little kids, take your vitamins and say your prayers. What happened to that? You know why? Because you're a facade! You don't have it in here. You walk in airports in spandex. Huh? And Hollywood Hogan here with your platinum blonde hair. So people will recognize you. Folks, I'm going to tell you the truth. He needs that recognition. Do I walk around in a kilt when I'm in the airport? No. No, no, I don't do that. You know how hard I tried to get a family. You know how proud of my children I am, man. <laughs> Cost me a hip, and never once did I complain. Seven years I fought, no cartilage in my hip. Not once did I complain, not once did I get beat. And you come along, and in five minutes, you take that away from me. So I says to myself, let's get mean to the extreme, huh? <laughs> And we do our push-ups, and we do our training, and I'll be trapped. I'm going to stay here for seven days and seven nights, and I ain't creating the world. I am destroying Hulk Hogan. There's not room in this sport for both of us, man. No, 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 no. What you did to me is way beyond wrestling. What? You need another big pay-per-view to buy another yacht in Hollywood. That whole phony situation. You've picked the wrong guy. You have played with the wrong man. Did you hear me, Hogan? Let me tell you something. San Francisco, huh? It's as simple as that. I'm going to teach you that pain is a four-letter word. And while 
say? Do 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 do. What you gonna do when I'm through with you, you piece of garbage? And the madness keeps going. So on February the seventeenth. Tony Schiavone says towards the beginning of the show that uh, there are reports, rumours that the Steiners have been involved in a in a car accident. And they're not going to be here tonight. Okay, all right. Well, well, you know that that you know in in, in a land where the, the the kind of promo that Kevin Sullivan can cut is viable, the idea that wrestlers who travel a lot could be involved in a car accident, you know, it's plausible. A bit weird as an angle, but it's plausible. And then Kevin Nash walks out with Six and with Scott Hall and says, I've got videotape footage that exonerates us from any wrongdoing. Which my first thought was, well, I don't think anyone was directly accusing you of any wrongdoing. Um, and then we talk about WCW's attention to detail, all that thereof, and God knows I've moaned about that in over the past couple of years. There's a brilliant line in the midst of this show where Shivoni says, well, we've got the footage backstage, but it's on one of those handheld video kind of formats, and we're having to convert it before we can get it ready. Fucking attention to detail, so bizarre in WCW. Anyway. So they watch the clip and they decide it's fit for viewing. Fuck knows why. So we see this two and a half minute video shot by from the handheld camera of six in the back of a car being driven by Kevin Nash with Scott Hall in the passenger seat. And they're driving around somewhere. It's, you know, it's, it's rural middle America, right? You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Well, you two all know anyway. Um, and so they, they, they spy the Steiners going into what you guys would call a garage, what we would call a petrol station. Um, get into their car and they drive off and they they they, follow, they tell him for about a minute just driving in the back and then Nash goes should we you know give them a bit of a welcome so they drive up behind them and they nudge the car nudge the car a couple of times and the Steiners kind of pull left a bit and they pull over to the to the right hand side although I suppose in in America the right hand side is the correct lane and they basically start a car chase essentially. Um, that you know, and it seems like up until the point where they do the jump cut, it's being driven by the guys involved, which was fair play because it wasn't the the most simple routine they tried to execute. But both cars sped down the road. There's a very very convinced or very very effective jump cut, and then we see what is in theory the Steiner's car being flipped on its roof by a rather well disguised kind of hydraulic ramp that kind of vaulted out the floor at the right moment. Car flipped over on its roof and then, and then the outsiders turned around and drove off. Now, I have a lot of questions here, but we do have a lawyer present. So, <laughs> Eric, my first question to you is, in, in a somewhat court of law, would Kevin Nash and the other two men involved be culpable in this accident? Because... I think they would, which makes me question, one, why the outsiders would ever present this footage, and two, why WCW would ever air it, before you even get into just the stupidity of the story. I, uh, I made a list of all the possible charges that I could think of that could be filed against Nash & Co. when I was watching this, actually, Bob. Um, and, and, you know, caveat, every state is different uh, in, in the U.S., but what I came up with was uh, manslaughter, second-degree murder if somebody happened to die, vehicular assault, assault with a deadly weapon, possibly attempted murder depending on their, their state of mind, um, if they really intended to hurt or, or even kill one of the Steiners, and then plain old battery. 
and there's probably about 50 more civil and criminal charges that I could come up with if you gave me a statute book in, in 15 minutes. Yeah, this is, you know, this <laughs> this really helps you suspend disbelief um, if you can watch Kevin Nash uh, attempt to, to maim uh, two people for, for really no good reason. Brian, what were they trying to achieve here? They were trying to murder the Steiner brothers. I don't see <laughs> – there's no other way of, uh, around this. And also I'd like to correct you. The In America, those are gas stations, not garages. Sorry, good point. But, yeah, uh, and also I think maybe Nash also ran that stop sign whenever he pulled out of that gas station, so you might want to add that to the list of charges. Uh, when you really get down to it, like you said, they were trying to murder the Steiner brothers, and nothing comes of this. It's just one of those things where when they get back to Shivani, he's disgusted, and he says that this is far beyond the world of professional wrestling. Uh, we need to get other people involved with this, and I think Keenan or uh, Zabisco agrees with them. I mean, there's enough people watching Nitro where you would have figured that, you know, and it look, look right, here's the thing, to a point, right? To a point, if you present wrestling in its own little universe, then you can kind of accept shit being a bit wacky. But when you present Kevin Sullivan's type promo the week before, don't get angry at me when I start taking seriously other stuff you present in a similar kind of light. And then... You're just thinking, like, well, the, the angle aired at, like, I don't know, ten past nine, whatever it was, Eastern time. It was about an hour before the show ended where you figured some people, you know, might have phoned up local law enforcement and gone, well, I've, I've just seen a video of two guys, three guys trying to kill two other guys. Can we go and sort that out? Um, and and then, you, then you ask the question as to, you know, when handed the tape, when handed a potentially criminal piece of evidence, why WCW watched through that footage, if it was real, why WCW would have watched through that footage and gone, yeah, we're going to wear this. Because that makes no sense. And then the whole thing that there's, you know, there's no, there, there, it's not like they were, it's not like the footage was, you know, found. It's not like the footage was third party. It's not like if the Steiners were in a hospital that anyone else would have known that the Outsiders were involved other than being guilty by association. Which, let's be honest, right? Any Bayface is going to look like a bit of a wanker accusing the, the Outsiders of trying to kill someone in a car accident without any evidence. So it's not like it ever would have come to pass. And that Nash just walks out on TV and goes, yep, we've got this footage. Clears us of any wrongdoing. And I'm thinking, well, what wrongdoing? And then you watch it, it's like, well, no, it doesn't. And then you're just like, and then you, you forget all that, forget all the logic, forget everything else. You're just like, Eric, what's the point? Like, how, what's the what's the payoff here? Because I'm, I'm trying to think, well, okay, so we show the footage, and then, you know, that happens, and then next week we come to Nitro, and finally the, the outsiders get arrested, and then I'm guessing it ends up with a series of gimmicked court cases, and I'm guessing that ends up with the judge going, well, we could send you to prison for 10 years each for trying to attempted murder by dangerous driving. But instead, the Steiners are going to let you off, providing you can take part in a tag team match at the next time of it. Eric, that's the only payoff, right? Yeah, this is so bizarre. It, you know, they're clearly trying to build up to the Steiners uh, giving the outsiders their comeuppance, but you have to be able to do it within the context of pro wrestling. And attempted murder, uh, assault with a deadly weapon, that, that 
takes us out of the context of professional wrestling. I guarantee there are people who called uh, and said, look, there, there's been an attempted murder and, and frankly, an implicit confession by, by the, by the driver of the vehicle. Um, if this is building up to a Steiner's Hall and Nash match, which it obviously is, that's awesome. That'll be a great match. It was, it has been when they've, when they've, uh, you know, met before, but this is just not a very, uh, well thought out in terms of a long-term storyline, uh, to, to get the build going. It was well executed for what it was, frankly. It was visually very impressive. I don't think that should be lost on anybody. This was, as far as wrestling, uh, footage, uh, wrestling pre-tapes go, this was very, very good, but it, it didn't serve its purpose. Brian, are the visuals where the price of this angle ends? I mean, well, I suppose the visuals plus the actual execution of the crash is about the only pulses I can take from this, and the fact it was very, very memorable. Yeah, and the realism of the tape, like you said, that that's one of those things that probably should have been handled a little bit better. I mean, if they wanted to kill the Steiner brothers, murder them, or tent murder in the realm of professional wrestling, they should have taken them both up to the roof of the Kobo Hall and throw them off, and that'll be it. Don't don't give them ideas. Whatever you do, <laughs> bloody hell. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, you know, we're, look, we're going to remember this angle, right? There is at least that. But I just like, you know, Kevin Sullivan wants to take credit for the the rating success of Nitro. You might want to stop trying to take credit for how well the ratings are doing and start trying to look at some, you know, attention to details. What I keep coming back to. And it's just like, what are you trying to achieve here? Like, what's the what's the payoff? It's not a really, really phony angle that, oh, you know, well, we could send you to jail, but, well, let's just have a tag match. You know, like, come on. Like, re- wrestling wrestling has to exist in a, in a universe where the, the consequences are proportional to the actions. When attempted murder is the actions, there is no wrestling-related consequence. And that's when you've gone too far. But still, visually very impressive, very, very memorable, but incredibly fucking stupid. And we finish on the pre-TV stuff with Roddy Piper. Now, again, on any other month, a guy voluntarily checking himself into Alcatraz, which I presume would be impossible, given that Alcatraz, as far as I'm aware, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, you're close enough, is now just a tourist attraction, right? Yeah, I've, I've toured it. You can do that. Right. And I didn't know that you could check yourself in there for seven nights. I don't know what the rates are or what the kind of you know, reviews are for it. Um, but they, they on the final Nitro before the show, we see a promo supposedly live with Piper, despite the fact it's clearly sunlight outside. Um, and Brian, I, you know, I, I talk about stuff being impressive without making sense. And I think if there was one line that summed up Roddy Piper's entire run in WCW in these last four or five months, it's fucking brilliant, but ignore the small print, because the presentation has made no sense. You just cut out right there at the last second. Did you say the presentation didn't make any sense? No, the presentation was very well executed, but what he said didn't make any sense. Okay, gotcha. Piper and Alcatraz, he is insane. I like how he started his rant with uh, uh, Alcatraz. Not even Taz does Alcatraz and laughs to himself. <laughs> that was a, a fun little nod to ECW on WCW TV. You know, Piper is a madman. But uh, I 
I, I actually did like this segment, and it does go into the realm of being absolute silliness. But then again, it's Roddy Piper, and he's on my television, so I, I appreciate that. It's been a while since uh, – it's been a couple of months I thought he was done with. He talked about leaving wrestling altogether. He was going to be a family man. He was going to move away from it, but Hogan pulled him back in. So I'm enjoying this, even though, yes, it is completely bonkers. Yeah, Eric, I feel like I could rip this apart if I wanted to in in, in a way that we, we sort of attempted with Sullivan earlier, but it's just like, Piper's so good, it kind of works even in, you know, if anything, the nonsense enhances what his presentation, doesn't it? He is so good. I love Piper, and that's not regional bias, that is just the the, the, the Nitro on the third, the, this, the Alcatraz, it's Piper's ability to, to be believable, to be likable, and to be a sympathetic uh, babyface, a uh, sympathetic, insane babyface, uh, carries him through past all of his obvious limitations in the ring, all the fact that he's, you know, well past his prime as, a, as, a, as an athlete. This is, this is great. And, you know, I've been critical of some of the hookier stuff uh, on some of the prior shows that I've appeared on, but... This is just just good fun. Uh, let, let let Piper let Piper have his have his moment, uh, have his uh, have his opportunity to do whatever the hell he wants because uh, you know he, he's winding down, and if this is what he wants to do and he's going to do it well like he has, uh, more power to him. Yeah, I mean, if I wanted to, I I, I could perhaps question the logic in a sporting contest of a participant in a world championship match checking himself into a abandoned prison for seven days leading up to his big match and questioning how that would help his chances. And if I wanted to, I could sit here and just, you know, look at all of the random stuff that Piper said in that promo that we just heard. And yeah, it's just like, no, it's, it's just Piper, you know, and I know that might contradict kind of what I said with Sullivan, but the the difference between the two is that Sullivan attempting to shoot and making no sense is detracting from the angle's ability to draw. I almost feel like Piper, it's the opposite, the opposite way around. Like if Piper tried to make sense of where he was in 1997, the fact that he's an old man, the fact that his body's beaten up, the fact that there's 15 guys in the NWO and only one of him because he's, you know, he's too much of a bloke to really want any backup or any support. If he tried to make sense of it, the whole thing would fall down. Instead, he just talks shite and it just works. And the whole thing with Alcatraz again, like it, it doesn't make sense. It's like ah. Uh, it doesn't have to. It's Piper. Like it, my expectation of Roddy Piper would be, he would think, come up with that idea and think, yeah, that's a good idea. Because in his own eyes, Alcatraz will get him in the mood for taking on Hulk Hogan on the Sunday. Yeah, I, I think that does make sense, though. He explained it that he's he moved on from wrestling. In his brain, he was becoming a family man. He wanted to be there for Colt and his family and be a dad, a father, and have something that he hasn't had in years. But now he's got to get back to the wrestling mindset in seven days locked up in Alcatraz. That would be enough to deteriorate his brain to the point where he'll be able to destroy Hogan without any issues. Do they have catering on Alcatraz? <laughs> They're running... That, that, that's, what, that, that's the point I'm getting at. And, you know, I'm confused myself of what I said earlier. But if you start looking into it and start looking into the logistics of training on Alcatraz, you start thinking, well, hang on a minute, like it's, he's hardly going to be in premium shape unless he's, you know 
got gone in, and when he went across on the boat, he had another boat full of a week's worth of supplies. But again, read too much into it, it starts to fall down. But yeah, I agree. The we are on the border of wrestling logic, but in this case, we are on the right side of the border. <laughs> and we're on the border, but the border says that Piper needs to get himself into this crazy batshit mindset that he hasn't been in for the last few years. And going to Alcatraz will make him do that. It just about works. And as we say, at the end of the day, Piper's so good. He's just pulling all of this off. Like his his... His presentation is so believable. The promo on the on the first Nitro, we haven't had time to play it, but the promo on the first Nitro is so good. At least the, the bit before Hogan comes out and they start pretending that Piper never won in December. Piper's stuff where he's just you know introducing his kid and talking about the Super Bowl, it's like, he's so damn likeable. And when you've got someone who's, one, very, very likeable on the surface, and two, has all of this history that people can go back on, it doesn't really matter what he's saying or what he's doing. People are going to react. And like Piper stands for a lot of good things. I think that's the other thing as well. Piper stands for a lot. When you look at the WCW upper end of the roster right now and the guys that are all not in the NWO, and which Randy Savage wasn't at the time either, the guys that are at the top end don't stand for things that you necessarily want to get behind. Things kind of turn his back on anyone unless they're a hardcore fan Luger turned his back on Sting Savage has turned his back on everybody Flair's in fighting with the horsemen and all of that and Piper comes out and it's just it's completely the opposite people like him because he's presenting so much differently he's just an honest guy he doesn't need any backup he's a guy that if he gets beaten down in an unfair situation he doesn't bitch and moan he takes it like a bloke it all works and I think I think that's we've I think of the three angles we discussed, if anything, this, if you want to rip it apart, makes almost as little sense as the others. But this is the right side of the wrestling line and the other two aren't. I think that's the, that's the conclusion of, uh, of what we've come to. And without any further ado, let's move on to the pay-per-view. Uh, Eric, you can kick us off with the results. Sure. Uh, Six defeated Dean Malenko to capture the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Uh, in a trios match, Conan, Laparca, and Viano Four defeated Juventud Guerrera, Super Calo, and Ciclope. Uh, Prince Ayukea retained the WCW World Television Championship against Rey Mysterio Jr. Diamond Dallas Page defeated Buff Bagwell by disqualification. Uh, Eddie Guerrero retained the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship against Chris Jericho. Uh, the Public Enemy defeated Harlem Heat and the Faces of Fear in a triple threat match. Jeff Jarrett defeated Steve McMichael. Uh, Chris Benoit with woman, or and woman, defeated the Taskmaster and Miss Jacqueline in a San Francisco death match. Uh, Lex Luger and the Giant, really the Giant with help from Lex Luger, defeated the Outsiders to capture the WCW World Tag Team Championship. And Hollywood Hogan uh, defeated Roddy Piper uh, to retain the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Brian, what do you think of this show? I kind of paused it for here and there. It was something that didn't hold my interest all the way through, but I actually didn't hate it at the very end. I think the biggest thing for me were the final 10 minutes where everything starts to go towards Piper possibly being the new champion, but yet he gets it pulled from him in some bullshit maneuvers, and Savage is now part of the NWO. I, I was a bit confused about that whole situation. 
You know, I wasn't so much bothered by the end because, you know, Roddy Piper's not a viable long-term answer to, to be heavyweight champion. I, I don't see him sticking around much more, so that, I was fine with that. You know, this show uh, this show was filled with a lot of good, not great matches um, that ended up being uh, better than the sum of its parts, I think. This was a, a very fine show um, comprised of a lot of good matches, and, and by and large, everybody played their part uh, right. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, you know, we've we've kind of watched WCW evolve over the last couple of years, or certainly they're under a mid-card evolve from, you know, very old school style, very old kind of past their prime wrestlers to, you know, go back to some of our shows in 95 where some of those first couple of our shows were real drags. In the last 18 months or so, they've basically, with the the advent of Nitro, they've kind of forced their own hand by saying, shit, we need some workers to get through, you know, initially an hour, now two hours of live television. Unfortunately, the extra workers they brought in have kind of now formed this brand new looking undercard. And the, the wrestling action now, providing they don't really work hard to, you know, include Jim Duggan against the Taskmaster or any other, or a few different combinations of those older, out-of-shape out of guys they've got. Provided they don't work too hard to kind of cut their nose to spite their face, you can generally guarantee a pretty, a pretty good undercard. And this was one of the best examples of that in terms of an undercard full of good but not better matches, which to an extent is all you want. Um, to an extent, you don't want, uh, you know, this undercard, when you consider that this included Malenko, Mysterio, Guerrero, Benoit, you know, the, the guys in the six man six is a, is a guy that can go with the best one as well. And some other names that I'm leaving out. When you consider this, this undercard contain those guys, you could have just let them loose, but by the time you got to the main event, it wouldn't have mattered. So from, from a structural standpoint, the, the, the first bit of the show was really, really good. Um, and then, yeah, we, you know, the problem is you remember the last couple of matches and the penultimate one had a happy ending until it didn't the next night. And then the main event had a happy ending until it didn't 60 seconds later. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, but we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come to those as we get to them. We open with a view of Alcatraz, where Roddy Piper has supposedly been staying for the past week. He's confronted by a guard, but says he knows his way. We then see Piper charging through a courtyard before being allowed to leave. I didn't spend seven days in hell for nothing. It's time to pay the Piper. The segment finishes with Piper on a boat on his way to the arena. Brian, we talk about everything else and all the stuff, you know, we, 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 to an extent, my fault, we overanalyzed Piper on Monday. But I just thought as a, you know, if perhaps you hadn't seen the promo on Monday, and I'm assuming there's a fair chunk of people that bought the show that just didn't see Nitro or whatever, what a brilliant way to open the show. <laughs> it, it was pretty fun. And it's it, like you said, if you just don't really think too much about it, considering the fact that Alcatraz is a, basically a, a spot for people to be, to tour on their vacations there uh, out in San Francisco, yet there are armed guards there to show him the way. Okay. But beyond that, he gets on the boat. He's screaming. He's a lunatic. He's deranged. He's ready for Hollywood Hogan. Eric. I think he should have gone whole hog and and just swam uh, to the arena from Alcatraz. (laughs) Like, if you're going to do it, do it right. Otherwise, this is great. 
Yeah, no, God, now you say that. Oh, no, actually, no, no, no. The better answer would have been his own handmade boat. Because if he's going to be there a week, he's got time to make himself a, 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 a fashion himself a raft, right? And in the in, in the true spirit of the guys that he allegedly escaped from Alcatraz, that would have been the perfect way to do it. Just a series of coats. That would have been fantastic. But, but he, yeah. had, he, had, he had all the sharks to deal with. And when he's on the boat, he's looking down and he goes, ah, sharks, nice, nice sharks. You don't want to have your main event guy eaten by sharks hours before your match. It'd That'd be, be a terrible great, business. It'd be a great way to get in the mood for the match, though. Like, you know, if you, <laughs> if you can dodge sharks in three hours before your big world title match, you're probably in the zone. But yeah, we, we talk about the, the whys and the what force. The fact was, like, fucking brilliant that... In WCW's universe, Piper's preparation was seven days locked in probably the world's most famous prison, or formerly the world's most famous prison. Fantastic. Really good way to start the show. And it continued. We move on to the opening match. Six versus Dean Malenko for the WCW Cruiserweight title. Malenko comes out of the gate hard with a phenomenal drop kick. That looked great. Six charged at Menko. Malenko, who responds with a perfect power slam. Six misses a charge in the corner and ends up in a tree of woe. Malenko picks him off with a drop kick. Malenko hits a crossbody, taking himself and Six to the floor. Malenko catches a spin kick, but Six comes through with his second as both men recover on the mat. Malenko gets sat in the corner and Six hits a running attack. Six goes for a standing sleeper and Malenko rallies with a big back suplex. Six lays Malenko on the apron and comes off the top with an elbow drop. He's working Malenko's neck. Six comes off of the top with a leg drop for a near fall. We go back for the sleeper and for once the announcers are calling people working on body parts. Be interesting to see if that mantra lasts during this show. There appears to be the guy in the crowd who's yelling one, two, three, and then everyone else chants sucks, which I thought was quite good. That's a, a bit more originality than you usually get from wrestling chants. Six gets crotched on the top. Malenko goes for a back body drop. Six, in theory, counters it with a crossbody, but they both land so far apart, it doesn't really look right. Six grabs the belt. Eddie Guerrero runs out, and it must be said, the entranceway for the cow pass was a long fucking trek. He storms out to the ring, eventually he gets there, and he stops Six getting the belt. In the melee, uh, Eddie ends up leathering Malenko with the belt. The ref just about doesn't see it. Six lays on top of Malenko, who spark out and wins the Cruiserweight title. Eric? This is the ending that, that Malenko deserved. There's nothing I hate more in, uh, in wrestling than idiot babyfaces, Bob. Malenko had six beat clean twice in the first three minutes of this match. He pulled them up both times. Dusty and Bobby both rightly called him out on that, that, uh, that poor choice. Uh, and then, of course, uh, six wins by nefarious means because he's in the NWO. Uh, idiot babyface number two, Eddie Guerrero, comes out to try to save the day, but of course he can't. You know he can't help but screw it up. No, th- this is exactly the result that that Malenko deserved. Um, and, and six just looked really, really good. I just wish he'd put that fucking tongue back, tongue back in his mouth. Well, there's that. I mean, Eric, we we're going to finish this show talk or finish this pay per view review talking about a guy who said in the past, "I'm not NWO and I'm not WCW." And one of the conclusions I came to on that was, yes, I probably won't want to be WCW either. And it's dumb baby faces like this that make me think, yeah, maybe maybe the third way is the, is the way better travel. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Malenko, they, they bill him as the silent assassin, this ring technician. He doesn't play any games. He doesn't 
take any prisoners. And then what does he do the minute he gets into the ring with the one guy who's been, you know, making his life hell for the last couple of weeks? He beats him twice and pulls him up, and then he gets beat. You know, it, you know, it was hard to it was hard to feel sorry for him uh, at the end because he had two clean wins. And if you let six up, he's eventually going to come back because he's a good wrestler. I guess, well, there's two things, not I inherently disagree, but there are probably two things you could say about that. Number one was that it does seem to be going somewhere, as we'll hear about after the show. And number two, theoretically, Six's comments on Nitro leading up to the show, talking about Malenko's deceased father. In theory, the logic says that Six got inside Malenko's head and Malenko wanted to give him more of a beating than just winning the title or taking it, I suppose. Brian, weigh in on any of all of that and your thoughts on the match. I, I like the match a, a lot. Dean Malenko is one of my guys that I enjoy seeing in the ring. I mean, he's a little squatty guy that isn't flashy, but some of the moves he's got are just fantastic. The the flying heel kick he does where he does his flip over, I've always loved seeing him do that. It doesn't make any sense how he can pull that off without landing on his neck. Uh, the Texas Cloverleaf, I love the Texas Cloverleaf, but in the end, him and, and Eddie Guerrero just end up looking like a bunch of total goofs in this situation. Yeah, um, the, the the finish, and not for the last time tonight, left a lot to be desired. I thought the first three minutes of this match, I thought Malenko, like, about three or four minutes of this match, Malenko hit a series of moves that I would describe as perfect, and I don't describe many things in wrestling as perfect. The drop he hit out the gate would look fantastic. The power style he followed up with looked just as good. Like, it, it just looked like crisp... Like, like, if there was a catalogue of wrestling moves, these these clips would be in them. If you were showing people, this is the perfect way. You know, when you've got the, when, when you see, you know, your expectation, when you see the, when you get a menu and you see what the food looks like and how the restaurant's presenting it. This is, Dean Malenko's moves are the restaurant menu moves. They're, they're, they're <laughs> what you show. When you're, when you're showing people how to do a power slab, when you're saying, you're going to get power slammed, here's what it should look like. This is the power slam you show people. Look, fucking brilliant. And a few other things. It's like, he's so good. And Six is pretty damn good as well. But yeah, a very good match. Let down by not as much heat as perhaps it should have had. Even the crowd were into it more in a, we're into the moves rather than we're into the story. And at least they are trying a story. Even though it is a bit, oh, Six runs in, grabs the belt. Now Eddie Guerrero's involved because he grabbed his belt as well. Oh, okay. Um, and then, yeah, the finish just looked a bit flat. What's Guerrero doing out there? Malenko should have just won the match. All a bit stupid. How did the rest see it, et cetera, et cetera. Again, a lot of this show is if you really want to take it seriously, you might start to lose your enjoyment of it. But still, very good match. We get an interview with DDP who seems to be set up to face someone from the NWO, but there's no clarity on who. That is until Gene gets word it'll be Marcus Bagwell. We move on next to a trios match between Conan, La Parker and Viano 4 versus Ciclopay, Juventud Guerrero and Super Calo. We start with Ciclopay and Viano. Viano hits an arm drag. Ciclopay returns the favour. The encyclopedia Mike Tanay fills in the background as we get Conan and Juventud. He didn't run, he just says, Hoovy, really loudly, for no reason at all, as Conan levels over <laughs> the first line. Hooven 2 jumps into a leg German suplex, Conan then powerbombs Seeker play, that nice. The Parker goes for a shoulder charge on Callow in the corner and ends up smashing his shoulder into the ring post. Callow kicks Le Parker to the floor and then hits a slingshot moonsault straight to the mat. 
least two could do is slowing down. I've got in my notes. Laparka sits Callow on a chair, then hits a suicide dive and takes him out. Seeker pay attempt at apron moonsault on Viano 4, but misses by a mile. Not even convinced that was deliberate either. Uh, Hooventude hits a lovely 450 splash, but Viano kicks out. We get Laparka and Hooventude on the top. Guerrero crotches himself, then hits a springboard into a hurricane rather than real smooth. Kalan puts Hooventude on his shoulders, and Viano takes him off with a clothesline for a top. We get a ridiculously contrived five-person submission. Two people putting a leg submission in on one, and then another two putting a submission in on the previous two, if that makes sense. That gets us to five. So if that makes sense, for the match previously we had a guy called six. Who and two get sent flying clean over the top. We then get a four-way star submission in the middle. Then in the middle, we get a surfboard stretch. This is ridiculous. Get the heels on the outside and the faces do a triple suicide dive. Kona hits a power drop, power bomb on Hoovy, who appears to kick out, but the ref calls three anyway. But in the gap on that, there were about two minutes left in this match and the ref fucked up the finish. And apparently people weren't very happier with him about it. Um, Brian, I think we're continuing the theme of it's really good, providing you don't look at it too hard, because some of the stuff in here was excellent, but if you start trying to apply it in a wrestling context, it starts to fall down. I think it was Dusty who just screams out in the, in the middle of all that submission uh, uh, mayhem. He just screams out, look at this mess! And I kind of had the same feeling there for a second, because there was just so much chaos, and this is car crash wrestling. These guys, these luchadors, are just throwing their entire weight, their body into these uh, these flips and these maneuvers, and it's just no regard to their own well-being whatsoever. And I think Laparka, he does that splash from the ring to, I think it was Kalo on the outside who was sitting in a chair. Good Lord. That's that gorgeous. That, I, I just, I sat there and I had to pause and walk around for a second thinking, oh my God, I just watched Kolo just get crushed. He's going to be ushered out of here, you know, to a hospital after this, right? There's no way to get up, but yeah, he continues the match. All right, cool. Um, for Conan, I, I thought it was strange. Conan is one of the biggest stars in the Mexican world, Mexican professional wrestling, uh, EMLL, CMLL. I, I don't, not too sure where he comes from, but Everything he does in a ring, it's so sloppy. Like, it's just seems to just be off. Everything he does is just slightly off. Even his finishing maneuver, the, the splash mountain that gets the win, he just looks like he accidentally drops him near the last split second, but, you know, he continues to roll with it. So it's very interesting to see how he is the guy they seem to be building up with the Dungeon of Doom, but I don't know if he deserves it. All right. For me, the best Dusty quote of the night was after Hoovy jumps over the top rope and Dusty goes, me jumping over the top rope would be dangerous, baby. Um, otherwise, <laughs> you know, uh, Bobby, you said you thought this match was kind of like the last match. I kind of disagree. I think it's the, the, the opposite in that the last match had a lot of really good stuff uh, complicated by, you know, some questionable uh, botches in the end. And this one, I think, had some really nice moments but was just generally overall poor. Uh you know, Super Cali to me came off really good, um, really athletic, really crisp. That chair shot that, that Brian brought up with the chair spot with uh, Laparka and Cala was probably the highlight of the, of the match. But, you know, Sequel just completely airballed that, that attempted flip. I don't know if you caught it, but, you know, Hoovy completely whiffed on that 450. He didn't 
he barely touched the guy at all. The camera the camera angle kind of covered for him as did Heenan and Shivani. Uh, and that stupid six way submission with the four <laughs> guys in the star, the the surfboard completely took me out of it. You know, my wife's watching it and going, you know, I know this is supposed to be choreographed, but but goddamn, um, to me this was was just kind of poor as far as these lucha matches go. I think everybody in this match, maybe save for Conan and Ciclope, could do better. Um, and so to me, this is a match that had three or four really memorable spots, uh, but uh, did not did not rise to, to what I think the six of these guys could do on, on most other nights. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm overstretching on my knowledge of Mexican wrestling, but I, I'm under the impression that the the Mexican style, and the kind of style you'd see when you're looking at luchadors and things like that, is in front of an audience that is smaller and is conditioned to appreciate flashy shit. And so they will appreciate flashy shit in this kind of format, even when it doesn't fit what a American slash North American, depending on where the border is in, in that discussion, doesn't necessarily fit what a American WCWWF viewing audience would expect and would want in terms of wrestling enjoyment. And so you can wrestle this kind of match in Mexico because the fans are just going to be wowed by spot after spot after spot. And it's more of a... I, I don't want to use circus show in a derogatory sense, but that's kind of the, my, my feeling is that it's more of a acrobatic event. But in... In the context of the rest of this card, in the context of WCW and the WWF, I just kind of feel that this style just is too far. Like, I've been critical of Rey Mysterio before for times where it's felt like he's given up on Sonic. These guys just don't stop. And let's be clear, like, from a from a, from an athleticism standpoint, this was a fantastic match, and there were some great spots in the match. But I was kind of, like, just, like, Oh, at the end, I was, you know, to point in part because we missed the finish because the ref fucked up the count. But it's like the match, in a weird way, got more convolutions as it went along. If it if it had gone the other way, if it had started out in a choreographed spot kind of, you know, set piece type thing, and then would have fell apart, you're like, well. That kind of makes sense. It's not like we have many six-man tag matches to line it up against. Maybe in a six-man tag in a wrestling universe, you'd start with some set pieces with some weird multi-man spots. But a match like this starting as a quite normal match and then slowly getting more convoluted and unrealistic kind of didn't really fit. But I don't want to be too harsh on it. You know, I shouldn't wish back to the days of Dave Sullivan and, you know, Jim Duggan in in the secondary match of pay-per-views. God, I'd rather have this. But it's like, rather than try and do ten spectacular moves and I get to the end and forget all of them, do two so I can remember them. That's, you know, that's the kind of, that's the change-up when you change audiences. I feel like you've got to change your approach a bit. But Eric, I guess they're bought in to to fill ten minutes to entertain the crowd. I, I think they did that. Oh, if I was in the live crowd, I would have popped like hell for this. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, just you know, when you watch it with with an eye towards detail to prepare to to break it down like we do, you know, the cracks really do start to show. Uh, I think if you maybe you know if you take your glasses off and maybe squint a little bit, um, you know, hide the flaws, put a little stucco, you know, on the cracks. This this was a fine match, uh, but there were just, just too many mistakes uh, for me to to really uh, come off positively uh, about it. One thing I will say. Bobby, I don't know if you or Brian noticed this. 
there were a couple times tonight, a couple messed up finishes, and this was the first of a few where, where Bobby Heenan, you know, really sold the finish as as definitive. Uh, really said, you know, he didn't get his shoulder up in time, etc. You know, Heenan's been checked out for a while, but I thought there were four or five moments tonight where Heenan really kind of brought you know, brought us back from the depths of a, of a, of a, of a screw-up. And he did really good here um, talking about, yeah, Hoovy, you know, he didn't get his shoulder up just in time for the three count. Believe it or not, uh, you know, he didn't seem engaged with this with this show. Uh, but, uh, but back to your initial point, uh, fine, fine match to pop the crowd, but when you look at it, you know, through a, a somewhat critical eye, uh, just a few too many flaws for me. Brian, any more thoughts? What is sequel pay wearing? What was that? Just, that's, that's the only thought I really had. I just I remember looking at their costumes, and I like what Leparc has got on, but then Sequel is just, I don't know. I, I don't get it. Ask the important questions, right? <laughs> we move on next to Rey Mysterio versus Prince IUK for the WCW TV title. For those keeping score, IUK defeated uh, Lord Stephen Regal, I think the Nitro before this show, to win the title. In an angle not too dissimilar to Rocky Maivia defeating Hunter Hearst Helsley for the Intercontinental title on, uh, on, on Raw about 10 days before. For what that's worth. Uh, Ayokea comes out to crickets. Uh, he hits a lovely side kick for a two. Comes off the top with a big crossbody. Ayokea has the upper hand with a chin lock and a nice big backbreaker. The crowd couldn't give a fuck. Ayokea comes off the top and Mysterio catches him with a drop kick. Mysterio has Ayokea on the floor, then hits a somersault dive under the top rope onto Ayokea on the floor. I've got fuck all clue how he pulled that off. That was insane. <laughs> Ayokea gets Mysterio on the top and puts him in a torture rack style spot, then just leaps off the second rope in a fallaway slam-like move. And here's Regal. Mysterio sets on the apron. Regal pulls him off with the ref distracted and Ayokea gets the pin. The crowd absolutely dead. Ayokea ends up giving the belt to Mysterio or at least offers it to him. As Shirani says, have we ever seen this in the history of our sport? A belt that no one wanted. That was really lame. Um, and also just to note that Mysterio is working with quite a serious knee injury. Um, they recommended surgery and he's... Um, not taking it, or they've decided for another course of action. Uh, but there we are. Um, Brian, this, um, yeah, uh, the action was okay, but God, it was drab. I was actually surprised to hear that Mysterio had a knee injury there. I had no idea, because it seemed like he was the guy carrying this entire match. Ikea just seemed to be a bit slow in certain spots. Uh, sometimes it made sense when he got on the top rope, he was really slow to get going, and then he ends up getting hit with a dropkick midair by Mysterio. Uh, let's see. The very end, with everything that uh, – with both men not wanting the championship, I mean, that made Ikea, the champion, look like just a total idiot. And I think Hina has a good quip there. He just screams, you know, give it to me. It's got to be worth something, which, you know, probably be a – not a – bad payout considering a WCW title for us, I don't know, a couple, probably 15 grand at most, at least. I don't not, know. Not sure Heenan qualifies in the weight categories. In fact, no, three <laughs> times, it'd be alright. I think it's the Cruisers. Um, Eric? Uh, you know, it, you can imagine that the, the booking committee sitting around or whoever books this show, Sullivan and Bischoff or whoever, and thinking... What if we had a storyline where the challenger knew he couldn't beat the champion, so he cost the champion the match to a jobber so that he could get a shot at the jobber to win the title? 
that sounds actually like a really interesting storyline. The problem is they pick Prince Ikea, Rey Mysterio, and, and William Regal, and, and none of those things are like the other. These three guys just are not folks who should be in the ring together. And they picked Ikea, somebody nobody cares about. They gave him no proper build on television. He's just kind of been in the background, as far as I can tell, forever. Um, and so they, they picked somebody that nobody could be invested in. Um, WWF did this really well a couple years ago, a bit of a, in a modified role with Barry Horowitz, where the crowd was over the moon for that guy. Because he'd been around for a while. People knew who he was. He had a recognizable face. So they put him over, etc. Uh, here, it was just it was just poor. And I really do hope Ray is able to get the treatment he needs. The guy with his skill set, you know, knee injuries uh, will will beset him, uh, uh, will, will, will uh, damage his career prospects long-term if he doesn't get that fixed. So I hope this is leading to a spot where he can take four or six months off to get that taken care of so he's not hampered by them long-term. Yeah, of all the WF storylines for coffee right now, I'm not sure the Rocky Maivia one would be top of my list. Um, but yeah, like, you know, if you were that bold about getting the honourable victory, why would you roll him up during the distraction? Um, is probably not the most important question coming out of this match, but apparently is the first one that came to mind. Yeah, just drab, like, you know, Mysterio, is great at 60%, but, you know, it's not as good a version we see in Mysterio. I okay, he's not good enough to hang with him. Um, and people just didn't care. Don't really care about Regal. Don't really care about Iokea. They do care about Mysterio. We're talking about Mysterio in the news being a guy that's being featured in some WCW marketing material, which is interesting to note. You know, off the back of that, would you not like... You know, because I, I was under the impression and the, the, the line that Dave Meltzer said in The Observer was the kind of idea was to get the three singles titles onto Malenko, Guerrero, and Mysterio, or Malenko, or Six, and the other two, so that they can have house shows with three different titles. You know, there's a problem there with trying to have three different titles, because they, you know, by by association, they all devalue each other, but have three different title matches on live events involving three of their best wrestlers. That kind of makes sense. If you're going to have Mysterio in your marketing materials, I just have him plow through people. Like, you know, he's, his offense is so good, I don't think people resent him. And if you can build up semi-competent storylines, it'll work. But IK is just death, and I kind of feel a bit sorry for him, almost. It's not a great spot. Go out there with no reaction. And I know there's the thing that you can... His victory works, but it, you need something on the guy winning. You can't just come out first night and win. You at least need some kind of... If it's build, even if it's just this idea that you know you're going to have new guys coming out every week to challenge the TV title, which isn't uh, champion, which isn't necessarily the worst storyline. You need to build up that storyline before the guy can go and do it, because otherwise he just doesn't mean anything. Why does he get a title shot on Nitro? Not answer that question, but yeah, I feel like we're going to spend a lot of the show picking apart the, the logistics, but otherwise <laughs> praising the ring action. Ring action was fine. I mean, probably the the worst of the three in that respect. The 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 through the middle rope, um, the through the middle rope sent on to the floor was nuts. Oh, Absolutely awesome. not. Mysterious, like you know. Mysterio's so good. Like, we're talking about him, Malenko. Like, hey, that's, that's kind of the thing, right? WCW can do a lot wrong. When you've got, 
yeah, there's a decent case that the, the, the four best workers in this promotion, Malenko, Guerrero, Mysterio, and Benoit, when you've got those guys floating around, like, people are going to buy your shows. They're going to go to your shows. You don't even have to book them well. Like, Mysterio, that move was insane. To hit it at that speed, he's got to jump through the ropes, get no elevation at all, and then have enough time, having gone through the ropes horizontally, to flip over 180 degrees in a small space. And he nailed it. That's shit. Um, but yeah, the action was good, the story wasn't. And I think we're three for three on that, and we might not necessarily be finished um, before we get to the end of the show. Uh, we get an interview with the giant who appears to have oiled up one of his arms and, well, nothing else. He says he's the conductor and Hall and Nash are playing the instruments. And next up, it's Marcus Buff Bagwell versus Diamond Dallas Page. Buff spits at Page. Page responds with a big slap. Bagwell rolls up the crowd. Page goes for a headlock, but Bagwell fights out. The crowd are into this. Page hits a nice rolling DDT. Bagwell returns the favour with the spinning DDT from the second rope. We get an exchange of pin attempts. Bagwell shoves the ref, proclaiming a three, and Scott Dickinson shoved him back hard, which whips up the crowd. Bagwell catches a foot but gets spun into a clothesline. Page hits a spinning bow powerbomb for a close near four. Bagwell attempts a pin with his foot on the ropes. Dallas drops Bagwell on the top rope. He signals for a diamond cutter, but Bagwell goes for a backslide for a two. Bagwell hits a suplex, then demands the ref count to 10 for some random reason. Bagwell sets for a neckbreaker. Page counts with a diamond cutter. Outrun the NWO jobbers, and Page just hightails it into the crowd. Um, I think I, I had in my notes that he won by disqualification, but I think theoretically he should probably lose by count-out for what that's worth. Um, Brian, I was quite a big fan of this, to up-and-coming-ish WCW guys, and Page isn't the youngest guy in the world. Um... But yeah, good, good, solid action with characters that the you know, Sidney Page, the crowd kind of are somewhat invested in, and a really flat finish. And I, you know, as much as I like Blackwell, I kind of would have just had him lose. Uh, it's not so bad. I, I think that the whole NWO angle with Marcus Alexander Bagwell, I think it's pretty interesting. He's a guy that has been around the WCW at this point for close to six to seven years. And I remember seeing a couple of his early stuff through magazines and seeing him as a completely different character than what he's playing now, you know, this Buff Bagwell guy. I'm all for this. I, 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 I'm enjoying what I'm seeing. Uh, the past couple of times I've done these shows with you, Diamond Dallas Page has always been the, you know, excuse the lame pun, the uh, diamond in the rough. He's always a guy that I never expect much out of, but here in 97, he's actually becoming one of my favorites. Eric, yeah, we talk we talk all the time about how DDP has improved, but boy, Buff has improved too. Uh, you know, like Brian said, we've been watching this guy come up for it seems like half a decade or more, and and you know he knows how to be. He's he's learned how to be the annoying twat little you know heel, and that's perfect to get the crowd riled up to get some simple cheap heat to keep DDP going strong. Uh, this was really this was really fun, you know. I I don't think this even matters whether the match was good, which it, it was above average, I think. But it, it told the story, and that's all this is. You know, this isn't a match of any real consequence immediately. It just allows the DDP versus NWO story to go forward. 
Um, I agree the ending was a little bit contrived, but I think it checked all the boxes that it needed to to keep everything moving forward and to keep both Buff and DDP looking relatively strong. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe maybe take back the point about DDP going through Bagwell cleanly. I think you, you're both right. They've, they've, they've got enough in him, and Bagwell, to a point, as we say, is... Uh, has been around long enough to a point where he perhaps does a bit more than just a clean loss. Um, I, I might have had Paige Diamond Cut IRS, or you know, so, you know, I, the, the NWO yeah. jobbers is not a, a not a great thing either. But you know, equally, we talk about dumb baby faces earlier on. Paige hits the Diamond Cutter, sees NWO people running out, and just floors it. I don't mind that either. Um, but yeah, Bagwell's improved a lot. Page has improved a lot, and we talk about the second match on the card amongst the others that we've seen so far being very, very impressive. But people not really caring. This was—I want to say—the opposite. The, the, the action was five, but it's like the action was a five, but the investment was a seven. And it's like the other stuff we've seen—the action being a seven or eight, the investment being a three or a four. It's like I'd rather have it this way around. I'd rather have good wrestling with the crowd really invested than great wrestling when the crowd's not. Um, and this had that. And and Page is, I don't know, there's the wrestler in North America that's getting more out of the sum of his parts than Darren's Alice Page is right now. I don't think he's a great wrestler. I don't know that any part of his act is great, and yet he's getting over. It helps he's got a really good finisher. That helps. But he's connecting with the crowd. And we talk about WCW not really... Or struggling to kind of get people, I don't say over, but get people through that ceiling, the ceiling that's kind of existed ever since Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan arrived, and there was this expectation that if you wanted the main event, you had to have some some history within WWF. Page has been one of the first guys that feels like he's breaking through that gap, and it's not off great wrestling ability. It's not off great premise. He's not a great promo. He's probably the the only guy that I would say has that believability and that honesty that Piper carries with him. That you you empathize with him because he feels real or more real than everyone else. I think that's why Paige is connecting. Plus it helps the finish is really good. Um but yeah, this was a, a good match and I would say the crowd were probably as invested in this as more than anything else on the show so far, which is an interesting little insight into the work rate versus uh crowd investment idea. Anyway. We will next to Chris Jericho versus Eddie Guerrero for the WCW United States title. Jericho goes for a hammerlock, Guerrero hits the back suplex, we get a test of strength, he gets Guerrero down, who bridges on his neck. Very little between these two so far, very back and forth. Jericho locks in a vertical Boston Crab and Guerrero flips out of it. Jericho gets Guerrero in a torch rack type position before dropping down. Guerrero hits a lovely brain buster, comes off the top with a flip dive but Jericho moves. Guerrero runs at Jericho who hits a lovely release belly to belly. Jericho knocks Guerrero to the outside and does his diagonal attack via the second rope. Guerrero rolls through a suplex into a roll up for a two. Guerrero goes for a swinging DDT. Jericho catches it and then hits a lovely bridge pin for a two. Eddie Johnson Guerrero's shoulders rolls through a sunset flip of sorts and gets the three. Um, Eric, good action, but I just wasn't really all that bothered. No, that's exactly right. Uh, this, I think, you know, I was harsh on the on the on the trios match, but maybe a little overly so because I think. This was the only match that, considering the sum of the two guys in the ring together, really significantly failed to live up to expectations. 
you know, these guys come out and I think, oh, it's Jericho and Guerrero. And, and Jericho's still kind of learning his way. He hasn't really found his voice. He he can, you know, make mistakes from time to time. Uh, but but as far as a, a matchup uh, that I was looking forward to, this was really high up there. And I think this was the longest match on the card, too. I'm looking at the times now, and it was uh, over 12 minutes long. And, and this match just felt like it never got out of second gear. Um, the beginning was a little bit fast-paced, and the guys were very crisp. But then it just kind of died, um, and and I, the, the ending came out of nowhere. And I was just this was not the match I was hoping for. I was disappointed by it because it felt like they, just as they were building up to to get to a five-minute stretch where they would really capture our attention, the match was over. Eric, can you tell me anything about Chris Jericho? Because he's been there. Better part of a year. Well, maybe not quite. I'm just trying to think. Last time I was at ECW, we were out of July. It's all right, seven, eight months. And he's been on TV, and we had the thing where you know Alex Wright, he had a match with Wright. Wright got injured, and Jericho, in a in a lame way that IOK did, kind of stopped the match. He didn't want to win, thanks to his opponent. You know, unfortunately suffering an injury. But I just like you know Jericho's a good hand. That's about it. Like there's nothing really to it. And Guerrero's like. Well, he's a baby face, but he came out earlier and he cost another baby face the title in a match that he didn't need to be in. And it's kind of like we said earlier, the action's good, but I'm not really invested in either guy. Well, that's exactly right. You know, you know, Jericho is somebody who you'll hear people talking about. You read him in The Observer and The Torch, and people think this guy is, has a lot of upside. But you're, you're right. I, I'm struggling, you know, and I'm not, the, I'm not the WCW, you know, savant that Brian is, but I'm struggling to think of a match... Uh, in the last year or so that Jericho has had that I can even remember as, as you know, beyond average, and I can't do that. Guerrero's an idiot babyface, um, so there's no investment in his character per se. But I think what I was hoping for is that the minute the bell rang, these guys would be able to put something together that was above average, and they just they didn't. As far as investment in the characters, I think you hit the nail on the head, Bob. There's no investment with Jericho, and Guerrero's already shown that he is not an intelligent uh, individual uh, storyline-wise. Brian? Eric made a really good point earlier in this conversation about how some of the announcers, or Bobby Heenan of the announcers was real – clued in on what was going on and bringing up a lot of interesting insight. At the end of this match, she just mentions just casually that, you know, Jericho, there'll be a time when championships, the championship gold will be a thing of, of Jericho's future. That'll be something that he'll be seeing. And I will agree with them. I think that he does have a lot of promise. Shivani starts the match by pointing out that guys like Jericho, guys like Eddie Guerrero and Ultimate Dragon are going to be the future professional wrestling. So that's where it starts, and it just doesn't go anywhere in the match. The crowd does not want anything to do with this. At one point, they're chanting boring, and it just never really gets the, gets going in any monumental way. And there's even a point where I think even Heenan picks up on that and notices that I think Jerick, uh, I think uh, Guerrero's just off tonight. I think that he's in his head. I think there's something wrong with Guerrero. He's just not as sharp. He's not as quick as he usually is. I just think that maybe a six has gotten to him, which is a good call considering that, you know, he's not really on his game. So it was an okay match. I don't know why it went as long as it did. I figured if they saw how bad the crowd was reacting to him. Maybe they would try to do something different or just, you know, get out of there immediately. But 
eh, it's just what it was, 12 minutes of filler. You'd have put this match in amongst any WWF in your house show, possibly ever. At worst, I think it would have been the second best match on any in your house. It'd been in the in your house this month. The main event was really, really good. This probably would have been the second best match on the card. And it would have stood out a lot more as a result. So I, I don't want to sound negative on a on a good in-ring match. But when you consider what came before, to an extent what's going to come, to an extent in a different way, this just doesn't stand out. And then, and then it's more... Well, I think the thing is, is that what I'm trying to say is that on another card, you'd be wowed enough by the action to be invested, even though you don't really care about the guys involved. But when the action is no better than what comes before it, you're like, oh, you know, it's just another match. And it's kind of an unfair bit of criticism, really. You can't fault two guys for going up there and having what is objectively a good match, but in the context of what comes before it, a bit insignificant. But that's kind of what it was. Like the match started, and like the the action was fine. Was you know what they tried was okay. The crowd weren't really invested. And in part because the action wasn't of a level they were going to get drawn in by, and in part because it was even as a top match. And I speak about earlier about the volume of the titles kind of being a self-fulfilling prophecy. Why, you know, why have we got a United States champion, a television champion, and a cruiserweight champion? I don't really know, you know, all of these guys, you know, Mysterio is a former Cruiserweight champion competing for the television title. Both of these guys are or could be in the Cruiserweight division. Actually, so could Ayukaya. It's like, why is there a Cruiserweight championship if Cruiserweights are fighting in non-Cruiserweight divisions? What does being champion of the United States mean that the Cruiserweight champion doesn't? What does being champion of the television mean that the other two (laughs) don't? And 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 that's and when you look at it like that, you can't then just have a championship match and expect people to care because there's no. This isn't a championship that's any more important than the ones we've seen before. The tag titles are at least different because they're a team competition, and the world championship is your main title. And in theory, it's a heavyweight division, although not that they really present it like that. Because theoretically, if you wanted to, like there's a there's a good case for presenting almost like two different weight divisions and trying to present both titles one one aside the other. But I think the hope was, we'll put two good guys out there, there's no real storyline, but it's for the championship, it'll matter. doesn't really work like that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to be too critical. Like, why about the clock two years? Fucking hell, we saw some absolute shit shows in the middle of WCW pay-per-views. This was, like, quite good. It just... Quite good doesn't cut it anymore on WCW pay-per-views. That's where we're at right now. You've got to be better than that if you want to stand out. Um, and, and, and to a point, that's their fault. And to a point, it's not. Guerrero can't help being booked like an idiot. And Jericho can't help by not being booked at all for anything other than matches. But until you can get fans more invested, either in the guys or in the title, you are going to have matches like this. Good matches that just don't matter. That is the problem. I don't know. Next up, it's the Faces of Fear, Megan Barbarian versus the Public Enemy, Rocco Rock, sporting a new bald head, and Johnny Grunge versus Harlem Heat, Booker T and Stevie Ray, Stevie Ray with Sister Sherry, or at least didn't call him Stevie Richards, I suppose, I'm not sure. Vincent Mann getting that the wrong way around on Raw this month. Um, 
the, in a triangle match for, well, nothing, as it turned out. Uh, I think, in theory, it was meant to be a four-corners tag team match uh, in form of the Steiners, and we discussed why they're not involved. Um, but, yeah, so just nothing on this. But, anyway, uh, big pyro for the Heat and the enemy. Barbarian locks, hits a power slam onto Rock, and Ray tags himself in. Ray hits a scissor kick. Booker T hits one himself as Grunge takes some punishment. Booker dominates the action, but Barbarian gets a shot in from the apron. Mank hits a drop kick, then gets Booker in the corner and two on one him. Barbarian hits a belly-to-belly suplex on the top, which was nice. Mank hits a power driver onto Booker. The faces come off the top with a double-team diving headbutt. Mank flips Booker onto Barbarian, who finishes it off with a power bomb. That's really nice. Barbarian hits a big boot and the match breaks down. Barbar- uh, Rock goes for a flip dive onto Barbarian, who ridiculously catches him. That's fantastic. Like, he caught him. If you imagine a guy in, like, a reverse tombstone pile driver with his back up against the guy's chest. Rocco Rock went for a flip dive, and Barbarian just caught him by his legs. That was fantastic. Um, but he held him there, and then Grunge came off the top with a rolling senton. They all kind of pancaked on top of each other, and Rock ended up pinning Barbarian for the win. And as Tony Schiavone said afterwards, of course, this doesn't make them the number one contenders. Of course it doesn't. Uh, Brian, what do you think of this? <laughs> I think the match didn't really serve anything beyond winning the crowd back. After that Jericho Guerrero match, the crowd just seemed to be dead. Harlem Heat, Face of Fear, Punk Enemy, it brings the crowd back to life. And that spot at the very end with the Barbarian just catching Rock of Rock, that, that was extremely impressive, especially considering how Barbarian doesn't even move. He just stands there, grabs him, and it isn't rocked back at all. He just is feet planted. He is a stone and just grabs onto this guy. Uh, the, the finish was a little funky, but uh, it, it was an all right match. A couple things that stood out to me were the weird thing, equips that were coming out from Bobby Heenan whenever the Faces of Fear was starting to get some offense going. He kept on calling them, uh, saying how tough they are. They live in trees. They're savages. To the point where Shivani gets annoyed and is like, no, they don't, Brain. Stop saying that. <laughs> uh, another point when the Faces of Fear got Booker T in the corner and they just start working them. They start just heavy hands on Booker T. Dusty Rhodes screams out, they're clubbering. Man got a Faces of Fear doing some heavy clubbering. Thought that was fantastic. Uh, it was a fun match. It was just kind of a throwaway thing, though. Eric. If we talk about, Bobby, you mentioned the, some of the unbelievable things that uh, WCW has done this month. Uh, Roddy Piper living in Alcatraz for a week with no apparent food, water, or toilet service. Um, the Outsiders uh, attempting to murder Holland Nash. But, God, I really think the least believable thing WCW has tried to pull over our eyes in February is that those jabronis, rock a rock and Johnny Grunge, even in tandem, could manage to defeat the Barbarian. <laughs> um, Public Enemy are just so bad. They've been so exposed when, when they're not allowed to rely on tables and walking brawls and chair shots and ECW-style wrestling. They are just the, the worst. And they're the only... Oh, come on, come on. You, you, you watched WWF Tag Division last year. They, they'd have held their own in that lot. I, I don't know that. I, I, they are so bad. But the point is they're not in the WWF Tag Division. They're in the WCW Tag Division with two 
teams in this match, the faces of fear, and Harlem Heat, both of whom are just excellent tag teams, both play a role in that division. Ming and the Barbarian are, are awesome to watch. Harlem Heat, especially Booker T, as we've talked about in months past, really strong. What good is served by putting a team like Public Enemy over here, especially over Ming and Barbarian, who are meant to look like tough ass kickers? Uh, does, you know, I don't understand it. Uh, I guess the match is inconsequential, so it doesn't matter, and I suspect the Steiners would have won if they had been in it. But Public Enemy going over here does nobody any good because the, the focus should be on the Faces of Fear, Harlem Heat, and the Steiners as the teams who can really challenge the Outsiders along with Luger and Giant. Yeah, it's an interesting assessment of the Public Enemy. I mean, there's there are very few things we've covered in this timeline that are a better example of the, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts than the Public Enemy, the act, being greater than the sum of the parts of Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge. But so much of the Public Enemy is presentation, so much of it is personality, that if you don't feature, you, you know, Public Enemy were 60% angles in ECW and promos. That's how they got over. And then when we talk about crowd investment, you know, one, it helped the Public Enemy were very good at wrestling a, a, a walking brawl, table-based style that ECW fans liked. But also, by the time they got out there, the fans were like, they're the Public Enemy, I like these guys, they care. I care, rather. But when you present them like WCW have, and because WCW on Nitro reluctant to do much in the way of non-live segments because they want to keep as many things as live as possible because it's all about ratings, etc., rather than, you know, actually trying to make money. You're relying on the occasional segment on Saturday night, which I'm not watching anymore, and the ratings show that, you know, Saturday night's ratings are steady, but they're, it's very much presented as a just wrestling show rather than a show where things have, have not happened. And the, you know, you are right also in that if if Public Enemy cannot wrestle the the one style they're good at, and let's be honest, it's worked before. The Nasty Boys of the Nasty Boys in '94 made a made a killing working a Public Enemy type style. So it's not like it's not doable. It's not like they won't get over. But, but the Nasty are so much better than Public Enemy. Well, yeah. Well, um. Maybe. But, <laughs> no, he's right. I, I agree with Eric. <laughs> okay, you're, you're talking about a guy that saw the Public Enemy on the rise. I'm, I, I'm doing my best to defend them here, if nothing else. No, but, more power to you, Bob. More power. But, but wrestling a style that wrestling the one style they're good at, it would work. But when you try and frame them and everything else, it does kind of fall down. Um, and yeah, I would agree. Like, um, if I if I'm WCW and I'm bringing in the Public Enemy. I'm I'm just sticking to what they're good at in the most part. At least to get them over. If you can get them over, I think, you know, it's not work rate isn't the be-all and end-all. The previous match proves that. But you've got to get them over before people are going to care with this level of average wrestling. And it, you know, there is that imbalance and they haven't quite worked that out. But then again, they're going to, they also can get over by winning. There is at least that. I don't want to dwell too long on the public. Anyway, uh, Eric, any retort to that? No, I think you, you presented a, a fine case for the public enemy. I just think that I don't trust WCW in 1997, where we are now, with, with how they've decided to present Nitro to a much larger audience than, 
you know, that that can't be compared to how they were able to be a little bit looser and freer with the Nasties in, in 94, 95, when they were going up against Cactus Jack and his, you know, and his teams, because there's a lot more eyes on the product now, and they're not allowed to, to get away with that kind of stuff. And so what got the Nasties over is it's not, it's just not going to happen for Public Enemy, and then, so what's left? Right, and so the Nasties aren't getting over in the WCW nineteen ninety seven for that very reason, you know, in theory. So I just don't see a spot for the Public Enemy here if WCW is going to continue to be a family oriented show. I said the Nasties are even appearing. I can't remember the last time we saw them. There was that news about them getting in a kind of fight with Scott Hall. I don't think we've seen them since. Um, well, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe that's the videotape we haven't seen from Nash and Hall. Is them uh, sweeping the Nasty Boys under the rug, shall we say? Um, <laughs> But yeah, the match itself, I mean, you, you've got to try and look past the convoluted and ridiculous WCW tag team triangle match rules, which have never really made sense. And, and to a point, we talk about ECW, you have a three-way match, why not just let them all go? Like, that would have been significantly different and more memorable. Admittedly, we've got a, a match in, in, a, in about ten minutes where we just let them go. So I suppose there is that too. Um, and I also, to, to respond to what Brian said, I wouldn't underplay that finish. That was a ballsy finish to go with. It wasn't like it was a spot. That was the finish. And for Barbarian to go, yeah, you do that flip dive off the top, I'm going to catch you. Rocco Rocky's not a small dude. And then to pull that off was, was really well done. But yeah, the match was okay. Reasons for wanting to push, if I can be diplomatic, there's reasons for wanting to push all three of these teams for different reasons. But I would agree that if you are going to push each one of them with the same level of laziness, the public enemy will look the worst. Uh, Brian, input in on any of all of that. No, I just I think this match is so disposable. I think when you're done with this pay per view, this will be a match that won't ever be brought up again. Just it's something that happened. I don't think anyone got elevated at all. It's just well, there you go. That was a match, and now we're going to go on to something else. Yes, and so are we. Steve McMichael with Deborah versus Jeff Jarrett. If Jarrett wins, he becomes the Horseman. Bobby Heenan, when talking about Deborah, says she hates to gossip. She told me. Thanks, Bobby. Uh, we have with Jarrett getting the better of the early exchanges. Mongo catches Jarrett off of the top with a nice power slam and a shoulder tackle. Deborah distracts Mongo and Jarrett gains the upper hand. When Jarrett is using the ropes for leverage, she bats away using the case. She's trying to keep this match even and fair for both men. Jarrett gets dumped to the floor. Deborah goes over and wipes him down with a towel. Mongo gets the towel and chokes Jarrett with it. Jarrett reverses a standing sleeper with a belly to back. Mongo hits a nice side slam. Mongo kicks out of a Jarrett pin, sending Jarrett uh, into the ref who stays down. Mongo argues with Deborah about the briefcase. He grabs her. She chucks the briefcase over his head. Jarrett smacks Mongo over the head with it and wins the match. Eric? This was surprisingly okay. Uh, we know Mongo's uh, problems. We know that... Um, Jarrett has really fallen flat uh, in the last couple months when they've been trying to push him. But really, this was a fine match. In the end, I don't even, I'm not even bothered by it because hearkening back to something Brian said to the last match, you know, I don't know if, if, if this finish is really going to get us anywhere closer to where we're going to be between uh, Jarrett, Mongo, and the Horsemen. It's clear where we're going. The finish was convoluted, but the crowd was into it. Mongo was, Mongo was above average, so... 
yeah, no, no real complaints here, uh, other than, um, continuing to give Jeff Jarrett, uh, what appears to be a, a notable, uh, uh, presence, uh, in WCW programming. Ron. Mongo has been okay in the ring as of late. I mean, his transition from an announcer to a full member of the Horsemen, I've, I've been all right with it. I think in this match in particular, he doesn't do anything that astounds me. But then again, he never really falls on his face in this match. There's a lot of campiness. There's a lot of hokiness with him and his wife, his wife protecting Jared for some reason. Uh, it's one of those things I didn't really pick up on. Is I think one of the Nitros, there is something where she looked at the camera and said that she just thinks that he, he'd make a good horseman, and that's how this whole match got started. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know where they're going with this whole angle. I mean, if you were if you were scouting WCW's active roster for a horseman, why would you go with Jarrett? Why would you go with Mongo? <laughs> well, well, I, I well he's the heavy. Well, 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 and also Mongo's the you know the former Super Bowl winner. He did win a Super Bowl, didn't he? Eric? Yes, he did. Eighty-five Bears. That's the one. But, yeah, Mongo's got the prestige of being the, you know, the former NFL player. There's, there's, there's something to that when you're not just looking for work credit, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, if I was looking for a horseman, to an extent, this, the, the reason this match existed in amongst, because this was the feud they were going with, was that I Anderson's now injured along with Ric Flair. And while Benoit's doing his own thing, it would have just left Mongo heaven forbid, as the only active member of the Horseman. <laughs> so they, they kind of needed Jarrett, even though there's now technically five of them. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work out what's happening with Benoit in a few minutes. Um, so there, there is that. I, I think the biggest praise I can give this match is that it should have been, by a distance, the worst match on the show, and it really wasn't. Um, Mongo is now perfectly capable of doing the things he's trained for, which given the amount of time he's been in the ring, or most of the amount of time he hasn't been in the ring, is about all you can ask of him. And Jarrett's good. Like, you know, he's, Jarrett's a six and a half out of ten wrestler. And he had a six out of ten match. You know, that's fine with a guy who's worse than you. That's okay. Um, I'd probably put someone else in that spot. But, you know, they're probably paying Jarrett a fair amount of money. God knows, well, based on the presentation in that run last year where Flair was kind of praising him as the as the second coming, you know, that kind of fell flat. Um, but, yeah, match was fine. Let's move on. Next up, it's the Taskmaster with Miss Jacqueline and Jimmy Hart versus Chris Benoit, we woman, in a San Francisco death match. Benoit comes out and he looks in a mood, presumably because Jarrett's won the previous match. Woman and Jacqueline seem to be more of a mood to fight. These two are attached by uh, a, a strap and the two fights start once. Dusty, who loves this stuff, claims they were doggy inside there. Just let that link Linger for a few seconds. Thanks, Dusty. Taskmaster throws Benoit off the top. Woman and Jacqueline get back in the ring and woman gets some shots in. Taskmaster tends to Jacqueline and woman manages to pull the strap into his groin. Jacqueline gets a shot in on Benoit. Taskmaster hangs him by the belt over the top rope and Jacqueline kicks him in the balls. We briefly get both women attacking the other man. Benoit and Taskmaster brought into the R-way. The ref doesn't even bother to follow them. Of course, we get to WCW split screen as Benoit and Taskmaster head backstage. Taskmaster body slams Benoit onto a small flatbed truck. 
We turn to the one screen as Benoit loves the bin at Taskmaster. They ball bra- brawl back towards the ring and the women are still going at it. Taskmaster puts Benoit in the tree of woe and hits a running knee. He hits a double stomp but woman breaks up the pin with a strap. Benoit hits a pile driver then drops to the outside looking for a table. He lays Taskmaster on a table in the middle of the ring. He goes to the top. Jacqueline dies onto the table to protect Sullivan. Benoit goes anyway, hits the diving headbutt, and somehow the world's strongest table doesn't break. <laughs> Benoit lands on top of Jacqueline, who's protecting Sullivan, and they all just bounce off. Benoit rolls onto the table and covers Taskmaster. Ref considers his option, then just counts for the three. Over after the match, Ironson comes out on the aisle. In fact, we'll discuss the aftermatch in a minute. Um, Eric, what do you think of this match? The table always goes over in the end, right? Um, you know, we talked at the beginning of the show, you know, we talked about how bad shit crazy Sullivan's promo is and how drawn out this this feud is. But, boy, I can watch these guys beat the hell out of each other for ten oh, minutes just about I, every night. I, oh, I don't want to misrepresent what you guys said. I wouldn't call this feud drawn out. I think there's 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 things we can pick apart about it, but in many ways, like they present it so badly, it's getting over purely on the strength of the matches, which is actually probably giving it longevity. Sorry to cut you off, Eric. No, that that no that that, that works perfectly because that's just the point that I'm making. It doesn't really matter what these two do outside the ring because the minute that bell rings, they just put on a show, and you know this this match wasn't particularly long. Their matches aren't particularly long because how long can you draw out a walking brawl that usually involves a toilet or a garbage truck or a delivery, you know, whatever. But, God, these guys just work well together. Benoit might be the best brawler uh, in, in the company, which you wouldn't think about. Um, but, yeah, and then then Jacqueline and Woman, they, they, they held their own, I think. You know, Woman's clearly not a trained performer to the extent that Jacqueline is. But, but they were a nice little side item to keep the, the fun going between the dead spots of the Sullivan and Benoit uh, stuff. This is almost, to me, WCW's version of Undertaker Mankind, and then I don't care how long it goes, as long as they keep having credible matches every once in a while. Let them go as long as they want to. Um, I just wish that damn table would have broke at the end, because this, this might have been, you know, top to bottom, the most entertaining match on the entire card. I wouldn't disagree with that, Brian. I think I kind of agree with Eric there. I, I, this is one of the most entertaining things that WCW had going on at the time. Everything, oh, I, I said I wouldn't disagree with that. Ah, all right. <laughs> but, I mean, this is just pure emotion. You, you understand the story, even though, you know, the neighborhood community angle. Put that all aside. This is his wife, or his, I guess ex-wife at this point. I'm not too sure what exactly is going on there has been taken by another man, and he's out for revenge. I think the only things I would love to have seen is if this match just go a little bit longer, maybe if another location, they just kind of walk away to the back and they fight. There's a couple of garbage cans thrown. Is they, uh, oh, there's a body slam onto a little cart to Benoit that looked pretty awful. That looked pretty damning. I mean, geez, it's pretty stiff. But – Maybe like another location, maybe some blood, maybe a little bit more viciousness in this brawl. That's kind of what I would have liked out of it. And then with the strap itself, it was a thing where the women were attached to it at the very beginning. But five or six minutes in, that doesn't become a factor. It completely falls from, I think, Jackie's side. So where now it is a prop that comes into play later. But if you look closely, you can see that basically Jackie is holding onto the strap 
as Woman pulls her back, you know, to keep her from attacking Benoit, which is, you know, a little strange, but, you know, live television, what can you do? The very end, the, the splash at the top rope table is a break. What can you do? I've no idea how. I mean, <laughs> Sullivan's not a small dude. Jackie's fairly small, but there would have been about 300 pounds on that table. Benoit's coming off at probably 230, 240, maybe a bit more. Flies off the top, lands it pretty well, and just bounces off like fuck knows how. Um, well, Bobby, t- we've talked about Bobby Heenan all night. And he, he saved it again. He said, you know, it's almost worse the table didn't break because of the, the impact and everything. Again, covering for a fucked up finish. Yeah, yeah, very true. Uh, this was balmy as fuck. And I mean that in, in, in the most positive sense. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 women, the women need to be there in part because they... Well, not that Taskmaster and Benoit went backstage for very long, but in many ways so the crowd had something to watch while they were doing the backstage angle as well. But that just, like, you know, it made way more sense than them two trying to, you know, if this would have been any other match with any other guys in this promotion nor any other, it would have been a singles match where the women on the outside kind of not really going at it, just bickering and teasing something. Like, ah, fuck it, just fight. It's like, yeah, that's believable, right? And then, you know, the action, like, as we kind of said, the action doesn't have to make sense. It's like, it's just really compelling. And, you know, my if anything, my criticism is, imagine if this was booked well. Imagine if they'd have had a compelling layered story involving Benoit slowly kind of getting Nancy away from Kevin. Imagine if people, enough people knew about woman being with Sullivan to make that more effective. Imagine how much better it could be if you presented it slightly differently. As it is, I think it's, as we kind of said, it's getting over on the strength of the action. People just about, you know, they've done the thing with Benoit and those those videotapes of Benoit and woman. You can kind of fill in the gaps. But this feud's over on the strength of the action. And it's like, this is also how it's completely different to anything else on the card. Um, and yeah, just another really, really compelling Taskmaster and Benoit match. And then we get to the post-match. So after the match, all three of them, Benoit, uh, Taskmaster and Jacqueline, are sparked out on the mat. And, you know, woman's, woman's all right, but, but still a bit shaken up. And also the idea was they meant to go through the table and they're all sparked out. But as we say, it kind of just about worked. So Arnison comes out. Uh, out comes Paul Orndorff, of all people. Nice to see you, Paul. It's been a while. Lee Marshall, who's just the guy you want in a crisis, of all people. Um, <laughs> just why you need, like... like like, there are medical people on site. Where are they? Why is Lee Marshall coming out before the medical people? Well, there's clearly a need for them. Um, so anyway, this, the, the story they're trying to tell is that all three guys are sparked out, and there's just kind of genuine concern about their well-being. At one point, Jimmy Hart holds woman's hand, which is a, a nice kind of touch in terms of, you know, concern crossing the divide between the two kind of groups, if you like. Uh, and all three eventually get taken away on stretchers and placed into ambulances. And Eric, we talk about investment. This was this was investment. Yeah, I mean, if, if people weren't taking this storyline seriously before, they did after. And uh, it, it just shows you that they're dedicated to, to telling this story all the way through. Uh, you know, I don't know whether I buy the, the drawn-out stretcher spot for a you know, compared to, you know, how severe that ending was. But 
if this was the story they wanted to tell, they they went all in. You know, they put their cards on the table, and it, it worked out pretty well. I think it was it was generally believable. Ron, I did enjoy the fact that they kept on this for a good seven or eight minutes. They get the stretcher out there, they wheel him out, they put him in the ambulances, two different ambulances, and there's nothing else that happens. It's just these people were injured. This is they put their bodies on the line, and now they're being taken away. You didn't see any of the members of the Dungeon of Doom come out. You didn't see any of the force, the horsemen come out to interfere. There was no extra brawling. No one got up afterwards to continue the fight. Uh, it, it was enjoyable. I, I liked the little realistic touch there. Yeah, I wouldn't do it too often, but I think that's kind of the point. It works because it, it felt it felt out of kilter with everything else. Um, in the you know, as you say, you have rules like this. The belt, you, know, you get a convoluted finish. Oh, this was convoluted. It's more a fuck finish. But you know, and then the match finishes, and then there's a winner, and then everyone just walks off and forgets about it. It's presented in a way completely different to most of the things we see, and that's why it worked. Yeah, you, you didn't have a you, you didn't have a monster truck show up and run over the ambulance afterwards. Like no, no, this is realistic. This is good. Yeah, investment. It, it, yeah. Um, can I give it two big thumbs up and praise it for, for, for what it was? You know, it's it's not the best wrestling match, but it's probably the match you remember the most. Um, and that's the idea to a point. I think it is anyway. We've on to Cy Main. It's the outsiders, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash with six versus the Giant for the WCW Tag Team titles. Yes, that was officially what the match was. Scott Hall wins the game of rock, paper, scissors. He starts by flicking the toothpick at Giant. Hall torch giant. The outsiders are very happy with the numbers advantage as the fans start chanting for him. Hall hits some chops in the corner, but Giant turns it on Hall. Giant slams Hall, then turns his attention to Nash. This time Hall spits it in before getting the tag. Nash throws Giant towards the turnbuckle, then follows him in with a clothesline, and Giant returns the favour. Giant talk, takes down the onrushing Hall, then drop kicks Nash to the outside. Six comes off from the top, hitting Giant with a belt. Hall hits a bulldog for a near fall and the outsiders finally have the upper hand. Start chanting for Luger. Six hits an attempt to spin kick on Giant, who is straight through the ropes, but he misses. Hall attempts multiple ten bunches and Giant keeps throwing him off. Giant hits a pair of big kicks and sends both men down. Six comes off the top, Giant catches him and throws him at Nash. Hall hits Giant with the cruiserweight belt, then Nash manages to hit a jackknife powerbomb on Giant that looked really good, all things considered. Both men come down, and here's Lex Luger. Luger gets stopped by Bischoff, what he does, but Luger just knocks him down, and he carries on going to the ring. Luger uh, ends up standing on the apron and offers a tag. Luger is wearing a sleeveless dress shirt with a hoodie. <laughs> Looks ridiculous, Lex. Even more ridiculous than the shirt he wore on the first Nitro. Luger signals to the rack, puts Nash, puts Nash up in there, and Luger and Giant win the tag belts. Although, as Luger's not officially in the match, in the ref calls for the bell during the torture rack. Giant chokes Lambs Hall, hits it, and pins Hall, and that's formally the end of the match. Brian. Great, great finish. I, I love this match so much. Uh, the Giant is a, I think at this point, he's a two time WCW World Heavyweight Champion, right? Think, yeah. Okay, so they didn't just completely destroy him. He held his own against three men, and they didn't get to the point. It got to the point to where Kevin Nash had to hit the power bomb to finally destroy the giant, and in doing so, his back gives out. So whenever Luger comes to, to the ring and hits him with the torture rack, that's what 
causes him to immediately just give up. He is injured. He is hurt. He has killed himself, basically, in an attempt to powerbomb the Giant. And, oh, that was a fantastic spot as well. I love this match. Everything was great about it. All right. That powerbomb is probably, probably uh, not probably, it was the best part of the night. Just amazing that Kevin Nash could get Giant up, even with Giant's help, for that move and for it to look as credible as it did. Just bravo to those guys. Um, you know, this match was really, really fun. Checked all the boxes. Scott Hall, the MVP, bumped like a boss for the Giant. Uh, you know, Hall is a big, big man, six seven, six eight, and he still manages to look small next to these guys, and and he wrestles like it appropriately, makes the giant looks look look just amazing. The the only thing that, that bothered me about this match really was the ending was good, the match was good, it was booked really well, it wasn't too long. You want to mask the giant and, and Nash's flaws, obviously, but with this ending, you just knew that it was not going to last. And that's that's starting to get kind of tiresome with the NWO is you have these great momentary mo- uh, instances like it sold out with the Steiners and, and here with Luger and Giant where you just know the next night it's going to become fuck all and, and none of it's going to matter. Yeah, that is starting to become a pattern. Uh, it's uh, it, it's noteworthy in the main event too, and it's it you know it goes back to to Starcade where Piper won the match and not there was anything to reverse, and yet the next night Bischoff and Hogan come out and laugh it all off like it never happens, and not not even like they're just being deluded. Other people seem to accept it, and that's really weird. Um, and you get something like, you know, we'll, we'll get to Luger the following night. I don't think we'll have time to discuss it. Luger the following night on Nitro, who Bischoff comes out and says, you know, you weren't cleared, I want the titles back. And Luger's, Luger's big mate quote was, oh, well, give us another shot. Or, well, I think they're playing some kind of convoluted multi-man, multi-title main event next month. So, not they explained it, but it's like, you know... It, it's the boy who cried wolf. If you keep, if you keep having these big moments and then you're undoing them, eventually people are going to stop reacting because they know they don't matter. They're not there yet, but they need to be very, very careful. That being said, this was really good. I don't know what it is about WCW having tag matches involving major guys and lopsided numbers, but we go back to. The match at Halloween Havoc in 95 with uh, Sting and Flair against Arlinson and Brian Pillman, which is phenomenal, where Sting wrestles the, the, the one-on-two numbers game until Flair comes out. Flair dances and parades about on the apron for eight or nine minutes waiting for the hot tag. Tags in, screw Sting straight away. <laughs> so and good. The, that's such a good match. And then you look at the match last year, the the, the the big bash at the beach match, which was three on three for, well, no time at all. Started as two on three. They eliminated Luger and then Hogan comes out and makes it three on two to the other side. And then this one, a one on two, that they just seem to have this, this numbers game booking set up really well. And this was great. Giant looked really good. Hall did a lot of the work in. Nash looked really good in the spots he was in there because, again, Nash, you don't want to expose Nash to long in these kind of situations. The jackknife was great. The bit with Lou coming out and flooring Bischoff. Like, in a funny kind of way, like, I wouldn't necessarily 
dislike the idea of Bischoff throwing out this result. Because Luger came out, Bischoff told him beforehand you're not allowed in the match, Luger assaulted him on the way out. I wouldn't inherently mind this. It's more that this on its own would be probably okay, but you keep doing it everywhere else, and now you're starting to undercut yourself everywhere. It's not controversy when Bischoff reversed the decision on Monday night. It's just, oh, this again. But even so, really good. Two big thumbs up. Um, yeah. Uh, Eric, any more? I feel like there's other things we perhaps could discuss. No, I, I completely agree with you. This was this was a really really good match, probably Nash's you know best match uh, in WCW. Uh, Hall and Nash together, great team. But yeah, just you know the problem is they exhausted this finish with the Steiners last month. If they had saved it for this one, it would have been fine. But it is starting to get tired. Braun, was there any point of this match where you thought that? maybe Sting or Randy Savage would come out to help the Giant? Because I was kind of hoping that's where they were going to go. With Luger, he's out. He's not going to be in the match. There's a spot open. Who's going to help the Giant? And I was thinking that maybe that's what they're going to go. Maybe they're going to try to bring in those two guys and try to bridge that storyline that was happening with Dime Dallas Page the night prior. I think it was telegraphed well enough that if anyone was getting involved, it was Luger. Luger saying a couple of weeks ago, I'm ready. Luger coming back on Nitro and saying, I'm cleared. And then Giant, you know, doing that promo where he's like, you know, if it's me on my own or me with you, Luger, I'm going to win the match and then I'm going to give you the title. That's what he said on Nitro. I think you could tell from the way they presented it and certainly from the way the fans reacted to that I think the the only real option was Luger or nothing. So I don't... Eric, any more on that? Nope. Okay. Let's move on to the main event. Hulk Hogan with Vincent and Ted DiBiase versus Roddy Piper for the WCW World Heavyweight title. Piper looks focused and ready. Hogan fobs him off and referee Mark Curtis has to hold Piper back. Eventually Piper breaks ranks and the battle begins on the entranceway. We get back in the ring and Piper hits a low blow before choking with his t-shirt. Piper is doing all the Hogan tricks, biting, gouging, etc. Wall Street comes out and Piper floors him. An eye poke as Piper looks up for this. Piper crotches Hogan on the top. Out comes Sting and Savage. Savage wants to go to ringside. Sting stops him but eventually lets him go. Sting walks away. We drop to the floor. Hogan drives Piper's back into the ring post. Savage is just standing at ringside as Hogan locks in a bear hug. Hogan takes the bear hug to the mat, enabling him to attempt to pin while still having the submission held in, which is actually very clever. Piper goes for a sleeper. Hogan fights and then fades. They're focusing on Savage a lot here. Hogan's arm goes down once, twice, and three times. The ref calls for the bell, and it's all over, and a big pop. Sets, of course, it's not. Savage, after the match, pulls Hogan's feet under the ropes. The ref awards Piper the belt and then looks back at Hogan being under the ropes. In fact, you could see him clearly when he was making the original decision. The referee starts the match, reversing the call. Savage gives Hogan some knocks. Hogan levels Piper and pins him. And for all of that, the crowd were pretty flat. Savage hands Hogan the title. They hug. They spray paint the NWO on Piper's chest. Savage and Hogan double T on Piper. Savage drops the elbow. And Hogan counts the three. Brian, firstly, thoughts on the match? Disappointing. I think Piper comes out with a lot of fire. I think that's the most interesting part of the match, the first three minutes. But after we get past that, 
it just starts to fall apart for me. The ending, I just, uh, it's so disappointing. I, and also, I wonder if Piper injured himself because there were a couple of times here in this match he kept on favoring his hip. I guess so, where he had that surgery that was focused on that at their Starcade match. It seemed like he was favoring that a lot. It wasn't ever really pointed to. It wasn't ever really brought into the angle. It looked like he actually might have just been hurt there near the end. Eric. Oh, I disagree. I thought this was great. Uh, you know, 80s wrestling is the best. It's just too bad it's 1997. Um, this had a really big fight feel. The crowd was over as hell for Pfeiffer. He was clearly the most over person uh, on, on the roster tonight. Uh, Hogan sold like a boss for Piper. Every little move, every little scratch, eye rake, punch, kick. Hogan sold like he was getting hit by a ton of TNT. Uh, the ending is what it is. Like I said at the jump, uh, Piper's not a long-term solution uh, to be WCW champion. He's immediately disassociated himself from WCW. I think this was their way of introducing Savage into the NWO and kind of in their eyes, cleverly getting away uh, from, from you know, the Roddy Piper emphasis. And I'll just leave it with, you know, Portland, Oregon is robbed of yet another uh, championship. Yes. Um, yeah, the match was very, very similar to their Starcade match in that the style was very similar, the action was very similar, the crowd was similarly is all over it, which helps. Um, and it had the same finish. And it was like, oh, that's interesting. Although, the, the way it was all framed, you could tell something was going to go down. Sorry, just at ringside, something was going on. So there was that. And we talk about Boy and Crab Wolf, we talk about reversing decisions and having, having big moments and then pulling pulling the rug out from these people. This is going to come back to haunt them at some point. I can fucking tell. But, Eric, my biggest thought was, Randy Savage just turned heel, and I'm not sure anyone cared. I think the way it played out uh, to the live audience, it was it was too fast. You had the finish, the crowd popped like a boss for Piper, and then the referee, in seemingly what was ten seconds, maybe not not that short, but it seemed like it was quick. Spots Hogan under the rope after Savage pulls him there, which you know wasn't necessarily emphasized to the live crowd, although it was emphasized to the the television audience. And then the referee just kind of out of nowhere restarts the match. I think if Vince McMahon had booked this, he would have had the the announcer, uh, the ring announcer, come on to the the live microphone and say the referee has restarted this match because Hulk Hogan's feet were under the rope. You know, you have to make it clear as day to the live crowd because it's really hard to spot details in a wrestling match when you're sitting 300 feet away from the ring. But they didn't do any of that. Everything was kind of reversed, and Hogan won within 30 seconds of the initial decision. And so I think the live crowd was more confused than anything. It came off okay on TV, but slowing that down, making an announcement would have been... You know, I think it would have come off as they intended on television, but again, it goes back to that lack of detail that WCW uh, has a problem with. Ron? I mean, I kind of saw what was going on with Savage going that down to the ring. I hope for the best, but, he, I mean, he was already dressed in the whole black and white getup, so uh, of course he's going to be NWO black and white. That's what's going to happen here. <laughs> so... I agree with Eric. Everything was a bit too rushed near the end. And actually, I'm thinking maybe they 
we're running out of time because, like, right after the last match with the Outsiders versus uh, Luger and Giant, they seemed to just go immediately into the main event. They didn't really spend too much time to draw, to build it up. It was, that match is over. We're going to start this going. Here comes Hogan. He's out. Here comes Piper, and the match is on. So maybe that was an issue at, at the end, but there were a lot of things that could have been handled better. You could have definitely made it more clear to the people in the audience what exactly was going on because I was confused there for a second as well before the announcers did point out, yes, Hogan's feet were under the rope. That has to be what the issue is. So, But like I said earlier, just kind of disappointed about the whole ending, just kind of bummed out altogether, really. Yeah, um, no, hard to disagree. Really, it was uh, it was it was it happened too quickly, and it was almost too subtle. Like it, it, you know, it didn't really make sense either. But it was like you know, when Hulk Hogan turned heel, he stepped into the ring, and everyone thought, oh, he's going to save Randy Savage, and then he dropped a leg on it in a big. Everyone's everyone's attention's focused on this moment. They turned Randy Savage heel in. 10 seconds following this great moment of elation where Roddy Piper's won the title in a bit that a lot of people weren't even looking at or perhaps didn't even really work out the significance of and then in about 15 seconds the bell rang again and there was just confusion more than anything which didn't help but it's like you know that that's a problem and that's a problem in itself because Brian I you know I'm not particularly sure Randy Savage as a heel is a great shout here. I'm not particularly sure that Randy Savage in 97 is a great shout. You know, we talk about Savage's contract expired about three months ago. And for all accounts, he was available on the open market. WWF had a look and worked out they couldn't afford him or couldn't justify his salary. And we talk about a company that's just signed Ken Shamrock for a million dollars a year. It's not that <laughs> they haven't got money. And WCW kind of went, well... He's not worth that much to us, but if we have him, we get this half a million dollar Slim Jim Slim Jim deal. We pay him a million bucks a year. He's around. Brian, I, I, I don't know how I feel about Randy Savage turning heel. I don't know how I feel about Randy Savage still being a significant act in 97. And it just kind of feels flat. And I know we sort of said it was flat in its execution, but it feels like it's flat in reality as well. I mean, I, I agree with that. But at the same time, Hollywood Hulk Hogan is the WCW World Heavyweight Champion. So you can't point out Savage being a bit, you know, over the hill. But then also, hey, you know, Hogan's our chance. I think that they're both on the same page. I mean, I agree, actually. I mean, maybe in a couple of years, maybe we just get rid of both of them. Maybe we move up some of the other guys. Maybe we do. I feel like Hogan, Hogan as a heel has more to offer than Savage, in that it was a complete 180. I don't know that Savage, who's always had this bit of a chip on his shoulder, yeah, all right, he's wearing different colours now. I don't think this is a significantly different character. And admittedly, the, the Hogan character of the last 18 months was a bit of a wanker as well, I suppose. There's always that. Um, Eric, same question? Uh, it's, it's, it's really a 50-50 toss-up, in my opinion, you know. <clears throat> You put Randy Savage in the NWO, and it keeps the party lines relatively clear. You have all the former WWF guys, Hogan, Hall, Nash, God forbid, IRS, Vincent, DiBiase, Norton's really the only exception. Norton and Buff, I guess, are the exceptions to that rule, but it does keep party lines clear. This is a WWF guy. Uh, He belongs in the NWO. You can look at it that way. On the other hand, like, 
Savage, you're right, in 1997, maybe he's not a credible threat one way or another. I don't know what, what relevance he has, but the story you could tell in an alternative universe, and I don't mean to be an armchair booker here, but you have Randy Savage, and maybe you play off that he's a little bit over the hill, but he's supporting WCW. He's supporting this company that is, was behind him late in his career, and he, he doesn't want these guys like Hogan and DiBiase that have kind of been foils for him his entire career uh, to, to run him out of town. Savage and Hogan have always been better as opponents rather than allies going back as, you know, as far as time. I got to believe this is just WCW's way of masking and kind of hiding Savage in a larger group so that he his obvious limitations and his advancing age are, are not as exposed because if he's a WCW talent, he's got to be out there. He's got to be wrestling, whereas in the NWO, he can kind of sink into the background. Yeah, um, I, I guess the, the, the best way I can sum it up, I don't really have a strong opinion either way. I don't feel like Savage is a... A big difference maker either side. Like you know, he's got enough name value and all of that, but I, I don't know that Randy Savage offers enough in '97 to the point where it's a big point one way or another. I don't think he adds a ton to the NWO that isn't already there, and yet I don't think Randy Savage leading the charge against the NWO is all that strong either. It's just like oh, he's you know. But I agree. Like it, it, it could have come off stronger had they presented it better. But I don't know that the entirety of the reason why there was a lack of reaction was purely because they went way too quickly with the turn. That might have been a lack of reaction. But he was beating down on you know he hugged Hogan afterwards and he was beating down on Piper and that didn't get electric heat either. Um, I think it was just there. It was just like oh, and that's when it's Randy Savage turning heel. That's not the reaction you want. Anyway, Eric, your overall thoughts on the show? Oh, sorry, someone just said something. Nope. Uh, no, Eric, your overall thoughts on the show and a score out of ten. You know, I feel like we focus on the negatives here, and, and that tends to happen because we expect a lot out of these guys. But I still maintain this was a show that was entertaining to watch from an in-ring standpoint. Don't take too long of a look at it. Don't look at it through your jeweler's loop, if you will. Uh, you know, 6 out of 10, solid, watchable show. Every match was 12 minutes or less, which I think makes it inherently watchable because nothing drags on too much. Yeah, yeah, watchable. I'd recommend it. Ron? I'd probably go a 5 out of 10. There were just a couple things in here that were extremely disappointing, a lot of throwaway stuff that was going on. Like I said earlier, I, I had to kind of just walk away from it, come back the next day, pop in my VHS tape and watch it again. <laughs> so I, I did it get to watch it all the one three-hour loop live. So five out of ten. It's just so disappointing that this is where they're going to go. Oh, a bit hard on this. Seven and a half from me. Um, you know, no no great matches, but two, three pretty good, pretty, pretty good matches. Um, another few that were, you know, nothing was bad on the show, really. I know we've picked it apart at points, but we're, we're kind of being hypercritical. Perhaps the execution of the main event and the finishes in the main and the semi-main. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I thought this was a fun show. It wouldn't shock me if this is one of the better shows of the year. Uh, it wouldn't shock me if it's in the running come the end of the year in terms of a, a show front and back where the action was never bad. The finishes left a lot to be desired, but... Some of that was 
unintentional. And there's a couple of very, very good matches on the show. The the Benoit and Taskmaster match is really good, and the tag match is really good as well. The the semi main. Um, so yeah, I'll give it a seven and a half out of ten. Tony Laurie, I thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, getting a big reception here at Sacramento tonight on the heels of the Super Bowl. Hackstall, whoa, 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 Hackstall, Jim Duggan. You've had an opportunity to look at things here at WCW at arm's length. Last night in San Francisco, the macho man Randy Savage shocked the socks off me. I can't believe what's going on. Shocked the socks off the wrestling world. You shocked the socks off the hacksaw Jim Duggan. First it was Terry, and the whole world was excited. What happened? Right. Now, macho man, what's wrong with you people? Have you forgot all the time at the Make-A-Wish Foundation? Have you forgot the Special Olympics? Have you forgot your friends out here tonight? I don't understand, Gene. The two of them, they got all the money in the world. They got all the power. But your heart is black. There's something wrong. And not everybody in the WCW, Gene, is going to run. Now, wait a minute. Not everybody's going to hide. Hacksaw Jim Duggan will stand and fight. I will not quit. I will not stop. I will not waver. Hogan, you know. You know I can beat your A. Hey, 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 hey. We're on television. Macho Man, stay out of my way, little man, or I'll trample you. And don't send them none of your jabronis after me in the back. Because I didn't do Big Bubba. You could tell me, Gene, I didn't do Big Bubba. Right. He looked too darn good for me to do him. So, Hogan, I'm not coming from the back door. If you want a piece of me, I'll kick down the front door, come stop it in, and I'll beat you up, tough guy. We opened the February 24th Nitro with the public enemy out to face the odd couple of McMichael and Jarrett. Mongo lamps Jarrett to make up for last night and the enemy win. Post-match, Anderson and Flair arrive to settle things down and the pair reluctantly shake hands. We get another AAA debutant in Galaxy who's matched up against Hacksaw Duggan. Hacksaw is in control but still uses the tape fist to win. Gene talks to Duggan on the aisle about Savage. Hacksaw's confused, fancy that. Next, Joe Gomez continues his singles run against Hugh Morris. It's strangely well matched but Morris gets his moonsault for the three. Tony shows us the stills from last night's Benoit, Woman, Sullivan, Jacqueline fight and we hear from Godfather Terry Long. He tells Jacqueline she should get away from Sullivan and Long's man Ice Train beats La Parker. The hour one main event gets Jericho and Guerrero teaming up against the faces of fear. Jericho puts a good shift in and tags Eddie. The two work well but Jericho misses his springboard moonsault. Malenko arrives, pushes Eddie off of the top and Meng and Barbarian win. In a match-heavy show, we start hour number two off with Rey Mysterio and Juventu Guerrero with Rey getting the win. Prince Ayukea gets another stern test for his TV title, this time against Pat Tanaka. The team get their money's worth out of Mike Tanay as he stays to see Ayukea win with a crossbody for Malenko takes on Ultimate Dragon. Sonny Ono gets involved but Malenko chokes out the Dragon and gets disqualified for ignoring Mark Curtis's five count. Gene grabs Malenko after the match and for possibly the first time ever, Malenko shows some genuine fire and character. Dallas Page is out next to face Dave Taylor. Page is well in control but the outsiders come out to circle the ring. With Page distracted, Savage arrives and blindsides Diamond with a spray can. Somewhat unwisely, a fan runs in the ring before getting caught with Hall and Nash in the corner. He gets away quite lucky. Macho tags Page. Savage then gets an NWO shot on and elbows Diamond Dallas from the top. 
After a commercial, Savage, Hall and Nash still have the ring and introduce us to another edition of NWO Nitro. Hall officially introduces Savage for bringing out Hollywood. They tell Macho they have a present and for the first time in months we get a smiling Liz. Main event time comes around, it's the Harlem Heat for the shot against, shot against the tag champs in Giant and Lex Luger. Just as the bell sounds, Bischoff arrives with the entire NWO. He says Luger wasn't cleared and used his cast to win. Luger offers easy a deal. He'll give him back the tag titles, but only if the uncensored the NWO put every title against WCW. Sting arrives, Hogan embraces him, but we get no reaction from the Stinger, and we go off the air. Dean Malenko, come on in. Last night in San Francisco at Super Brawl, I've got to tell you this, in my opinion, Eddie Guerrero came in trying to help you, and all of a sudden you're blaming him for everything that's gone wrong in the last 24 hours. Gene, I am sick and tired and fed up with what's been happening and the respect that this man right here has not gotten in the last couple of weeks in WCW. Now, let's go back to one step. Six, I haven't forgotten about you and the bad things you said about my late father. You have what I want, and I'm going to get it. That's another place and another time. But right now, last night's Super Bowl, the last person I would ever, ever think in our sport who would come down and steal the belt from me is Eddie Guerrero. Eddie, two can play that game. You saw it tonight. I'm not afraid of you, and I don't care anymore. I just don't care, Gene. A couple of things to discuss before we finish. Um... Namely, just uh, I think a look at the, the 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 kind of closing twenty minutes of the final Nitro of the month, specifically where Lex Luger hands back the tag titles for a you know uh, give us another shot and we'll give you the titles. You know, Luger, that's not the best logic. And then just the the concluding angle on, on, on Nitro where everyone's coming out, and then out comes Sting, and obviously that's technically the angle, it's the same angle, what am I about? Uh, everyone comes out and surrounds Luger and Giant, and then Sting walks out to kind of, you know, part the seas. Hogan embraces him and Sting does nothing. Um, Brian, I think it's it's pretty clear now that if the opposition for the NWO exists, it is Sting, because it isn't anyone else. You would think so. Until Sting walks out, it, it gets embraced by Hogan, and now it seems like Sting is part of the NWO. I no, I didn't read. Now that's that's been the whole thing. Like Sting is Sting is non-committal either way. If Sting joins the NWO, this whole thing's over. Like you know, there's there's no opposition left. Um, I guess the idea is is that Sting is going to do a much much more elaborate version of what Dino Dallas Page did, draw them in, and then finally show his cards when the time's right. I think, Brian, I think that's what that is. I, I don't know. It, it was just like the thing that happened the night before with uh, Savage. I just kind of watched this Nitro and just disappointed. I, I mean, at, at this point, who do you got? Dime Dallas Page, the Giant, and Luger? That's going to be your main guys against heavyweights like Savage, Sting, Hogan? It's it's looking grim. I think I kind of with you, Bob. Uh you know, Sting embraced Hogan, or really more, Hogan embraced Sting, but I can really see how this could be a long game with Sting playing upon the, the, the cockiness and the arrogance of the NWO. 
uh, along with, you know, the fact that Sting's recent running mate, Savage, just, just signed up to join that uh, organization. I think Sting, if you want to look at this, you know, really deeply, and wrestling storylines don't awfully, don't often get there. But, um, you know, Sting could be, you know, somebody, like you said, who's going to go inside just to come back out and, and destroy the group. Uh, but but if not, if they've decided to to hitch their wagons to DDP and Luger, to Giant, maybe to to Flair if he's able to get back, and, and the rest of the four horsemen if they can finish their their infighting, it still doesn't look like a very fair fight. It looks like if Sting joins the NWO, then WCW's uh, decided to take the storyline in a direction that none of us uh, predicted. I think we're all overlooking the fact that the, the the guy that's leading the charge at the moment is still Jim Duggan. <laughs> it's, it's February. It's still Jim Duggan. Like who? Well, it could, it could who? be DDP as well. Well, all right. But who's the guy that's unabashedly been pro WCW since night <laughs> one since this NWO thing formed? Jim Duggan. Jim Duggan was the guy on the first Nitro after Bash at the Beach that cut promo and ran down Hogan. At that point, it kind of made sense. Duggan's a bit expendable. He's the guy that's been around the block enough times. He knows both guys very, very well. It kind of makes sense that he's the one that probably, given his experience, has the most coherent thoughts about this. But it's February, and it's still Duggan. Duggan's still the guy leading the charge, like the, the, the pro WCW guy. Everyone else is not really one or the other. Piper's fighting the NWO, but he ain't representing WCW. Page is, but he can't flirt with Buzz, and he's not the most pro WCW guy. Sting's the guy that's in the middle. The horsemen are doing their own things. They're not really pro anyone. Duggan's the only one left. Like, the old couple is still going, but on a more serious point, yeah, like it... It's inconceivable that Sting isn't going to end up being the leader of the opposition. If he, if not, like you're fucked. If not, it's Sting, Savage, Hall, Nash, and Hogan against what? Good luck going down Page. You can get like you know, look, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if they just strapped a rocket to Page. But Page is one old enough, and dare I say, it, Page ain't that good. Page is not the kind of guy I think can lead this. He'd be a very, very good number two, perhaps behind Sting. And it's you know, I shouldn't criticise WCW for pushing a a new, if not young guy. But if it's not Sting, it's not really. Yeah, there's no real option left. Um, but yeah, like you know, I, I think the intrigue here to carry them over the bumps in the road. I think that's what I'd say. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good, and it's a hot angle. Let's say that. I think that's the, the best way to sum it up. We finish with a... Here's an interesting discussion. Brian, I, you're a big WCW fan, but I, I don't know that the answer to anything is another two-hour live show every week. Yeah, there's a lot of... There's a lot of weird rumors that are out right now regarding that. And with the NWO numbers as large as they are, who's to say that this doesn't become an NWO show? I mean, you guys talked about the uh, sold-out pay-per-view last month, so, I mean, maybe that's the direction it's going to go with. And if Sting does join the NWO, then it becomes its own thing. I mean, they've got the star power. It would make sense. But, Brian, haven't we seen that anything with NWO on it – NWO led has been shit. I yeah, I, I agree. I I'm, will not say it's going to be a good thing. I, I actually completely agree with that, but that might be where where they'll head up with this. Eric, 
Man, I don't know. I just, you know, WCW, we talked about, they have basically the perfect, uh, you know, they have a large roster, but they have basically the guys they they feature the most. Uh, they have the perfect amount of those for a two-hour show every Monday and a monthly pay-per-view. If, if they're going to try to pull off this, this second two-hour show, it's 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 either got to be something different, and maybe Brian's right, maybe it is an NWO-centric show, but God forbid the guys that they scrape off the bottom of the barrel to recruit to that group. Uh, otherwise, they're going to have to to find other people uh, to 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 fill out the the middle and top of the roster uh, to to make it a viable two hour show that doesn't completely overexpose the guys Benoit, uh, Malenko, uh, Hall and Nash, etc. The guys that are really being featured, Luger and the Giant, uh, overexpose them to uh, uh, to the national audience and, and keep interest as peaked as it is. So. Yeah, I don't think it's a good idea. Wrestling something that you only want a limited amount of every week and we're already getting four hours every Monday and six hours of pay-per-view or five hours of pay-per-view every month. So uh, let's let, let's be cautious here at WCW and, and proceed uh, and, you know, with, with some uh, responsibility. Yeah, I mean, at least it seems like WCW kind of agree with that. It seems like it's the broadcasters that want it. But, yeah, I, you know, I don't know how they can pull this off like they they found a way to make two hours on a monday work and funnily enough the they struggled in those first few months it was only really september october where they really found a way of getting through two hours it was the you know we talk about how great the outsiders run was pre-nwo those were kind of four or five minutes to show those shows struggled otherwise when they didn't have enough star power, they didn't have enough things going. And to an extent, they deserve a bit of time to get to get a two-hour show moving and get more characters in front of people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, the, the two options are: you have a, another live two-hour show and you run with the same guys, which overexposes them, which waters it down, which makes telling stories a lot more difficult because you've got more main events to do, you've got more chapters to stories, more moments between pay-per-views. Or you've got to find new guys. And I don't know where those guys are. You know, maybe you make it a Cruiserweight-only show, but the Cruiserweights are propping up Nitro, and the Cruiserweights, I don't think, are in a position they're going to draw. You could just split everyone up. You could, you know, just take all the talent you've got and divide it in half. But that doesn't really fit where they're at right now. It's faction wars at the moment. You can't really fracture faction wars. You can't split them clean in half. An NWO show is going to die at death. We saw it in September with that attempted NWO Monday Nitro. We saw it, God, last month. Go back and see if you sold out. <laughs> NWO on its own, as it stands, cannot work. There might be a way of retooling it, although I'd say it's odds against. But it just don't work. But I, I think, Brian, the bigger point, forget it from a WCW perspective, as, as good as wrestling is right now, I don't know that we need another two-hour show. I feel like, you know, with two hours of Nitro, and not that it's WCW's fault or responsibility or point that say that Raw is now two hours is a factor, but it is a factor because you add in another two-hour show, you don't create a new audience. You dilute the audience that already exists, even on another night. I just don't know that anyone benefits from a two-hour show, another two-hour show, particularly not the audience. Uh, I completely agree with that. I mean, even at this point, I catch Saturday night if I'm home, if I'm available. So just even that, I think it's just like an hour long. You know, even that, that's just an occasional thing that I do. Where they're at right now, two hours on Monday, 
occasional pay-per-view, I'm completely happy with. I mean, yeah, it would be kind of neat to have more, but at the same time, I, I'm at my point of I've got my fill. Because, Eric, once you give people more than they can handle, they don't watch more than they're watching before. They probably start watching less, don't they? Well, I think if, if, if the two, you know, if the shows become reliant on one another and, and you're forced to watch two hours of Nitro plus two hours of something else, and let's say you happen to watch Raw, like at, at a certain point for the casual viewer, if you're going to watch four hours a week of WCW and the storylines in each show are dependent on, on the other show, it just becomes something that's too hard to keep track of. Like, you know, two hours of Nitro was almost a stretch, and the fans have kind of been conditioned to it. But, man, if, if you're going to make people, you know, keep up with what the stories are, you know, between four hours a week of programming over two shows, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. People are going to go away from it because they're going to think, oh, this is too much of a commitment for me to keep track of this, and uh, and, and I'm just going to, you know, use my time to, to watch something else. Uh, so, yeah, I think... Unless you have two completely separate entities, I don't know how that would work because the NWO show would be an unmitigated disaster. I I can't see it. I can't see how it would work and keep WCW viable. No, well, I mean, it would keep them viable in the sense that it would give them more ad dollars um, and it would give them more um, revenues from TV. But, yeah, otherwise I can't really disagree with anything we said. It, it, It just... You know, you divide everything you've got by two. You, 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 this isn't an addition game. This isn't a, you know, it's not like they say, right, we've got another two hours. Let's present something completely different. We can bring in ten top talents that we don't have before. They just don't exist. And it's not, and I say, it's not even, it would kind of work if it was like, well, there's an audience on Monday, but there's a completely different audience we could find on a Thursday. It's not like they were saying, well, we we run this Monday show in Atlanta, but let's run a a Thursday show in California. But it's like, okay, well, in that case, if you're talking about live attendances, I know I'm going off on a tangent here. That makes sense because you can pull from a completely different audience of people. It's sustainable. But because it's television, because it's nationwide, the audience is the same. And you just say, okay, we've got this audience on a Monday. We now need to make it work on a Thursday. Chances are it just damages Monday's audience. It doesn't create a new audience. It doesn't grow interest in the product you've got. It just dilutes everything. Just don't think it works. Anyway, I am... It's about, you know, 20 to 11... 8pm in the UK. I'm flagging somewhat, so a very good time to, to wrap up the show is before I start yawning over everyone. Uh, Eric Lansom. Eric, thank you very much. Happy to be here, Bob. Uh, thanks for letting me uh, talk extensively about my uh, my hometown neighbour, Roddy Roddy Piper. Excellent. Eric, you can be found on Twitter. Yep, at uh, Modern Day Lawyer. Excellent. And to Brian Barrera. Brian, thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. It's always a fun time with you guys. It's always good to have you on. Brian, the uh, the emperor of WCWWorldwide.com, uh, since you, since we spoke to you last, have you now completed the WCW magazine collection? <laughs> I've, uh, I have two from 95 I still don't have. And I recently put something out, I think, last month that shook a couple of trees and have gotten 10 out of the 12... German WCW magazines from 95 that have been released. So I am getting super close to getting it, getting everything. 
got got to get over the line some way, shape, or form. Uh, Brian, tell people about WCWWorldwide.com, what it is, uh, where they can find it, and about your patron as well. Uh, WCWWorldwide.com. It's just a site where everything on there is just celebrating World Championship Wrestling. I do a lot of magazine scans, a lot of program scans. Coming out here within the next week will be a German WCW program from 1997. I believe it's the German tour that happened around June, yet all the photos and everything involved looks like it's from around this time, around February. So it's kind of interesting to see how that worked out. Um, and the Patreon I've got going on, patreon.com slash Worldwide. If you just give me a dollar, at the very least, that'll get you in to where all my scans that I'm putting up and letting people download uh, full magazines, full programs, and in some cases, music albums, you could get that before everyone else. Before it hits the main site, it'll be available on Patreon. And then also has several different levels to where if you get $5, you'll get a WCW price pack. You give me $10, you get a beefier price pack. Give me 20, you're going to get one of the WCW Worldwide gimmick boxes, which is going to be full of uh, random merchandise, a lot of custom items, very, very cool stuff. And if you just follow me anywhere online, you'll see a lot of photos of what exactly I'm about to start putting into these things. Excellent. Yes, WCWWorldwide.com for everything. Um, All the magazines, like I, I think it was yesterday, Brian, you tweeted about the WCW and NWO branded credit cards, which just look fantastic. Yeah, the MasterCards from 98, and I also put the, an advert from 2000. So they had two separate batches of these things. I, and as funny as it sounds, like you think that, oh, that sounds terrible. No one probably had those things. And I put it on the Facebook, and everyone there is like, oh, my God, I, I, I remember having that card. Or my mom used to have the Sting card. Or I tried to get my dad to get the Kevin Nash card, and he told me no. So there's a lot of fun little reactions for people. The, I, even before I started this, like the, 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 one, the one takeaway of WCW I always had was they merchandise fucking everything like there was a, like wasn't there like a nitro cologne you could buy yes uh the wcw nitro cologne that was probably like around 1999 you've got that uh some of the wackier stuff that i've seen a, a prototype came out recently of a kevin nash lamp which was just the decapitated head of the kevin nash that you would you know put on your desk and turn it into a lamp but yet it didn't have any eyeballs so the light would just <laughs> just lit up these dark holes in his face, and it looked absolutely terrifying. But you can find photos of that on WCWWorldwide.com. There we go. There we go. The the, the 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 ends that WCW would go to just to make money. I think I think you're right. I think it was like '99 was about the peak for all of that. The one thing we kind of mentioned when we discussed the NWO in the last few months is that that WCW's Processes and systems are taking a long while. Take a long while to catch up to how over the NWO is. The merchandise isn't really ready, or that kind of thing. And then, yeah, they they soon overcorrect that problem, and then you just they just seem to just start. I think ninety eight, ninety nine. They just start merchandising everything. And you can see a lot of that on WCWWorldwide.com. Very very quickly, because I'm going to fall asleep in a bit. Uh, you can find. Um, you can find our patron. I know we don't want to sound too much like we're begging for money, but yes, that we are available as our patron. <laughs> if you, you are a fan of this show, you'd like to contribute to uh, 
while my running costs, amongst other things, you like early access shows like this, or just say thank you for for us contributing to your podcasting existence. You can find out more information at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 rs Link in the podcast description and on our website. Three of the volumes for you this month, volume two, WF looking at In Your House, Final Four, and all the stuff on Raw, including the ECW Invasion of Raw. Speaking of ECW, volume three, Cyber Slam. Uh, what happened on there? A lot happens on there. The, the build towards barely legal um, and some balmy shit. Usually CW stuff, really, in- including, I think the the greatest ending to a wrestling match I've ever seen, and it did involve the Sandman. Hear more about that in Volume Three. You can also see the clip of that on our Facebook page at the moment. Volume Number Four is our latest trip to UFC, including the debut of Vitor Belfort. Yes, the guy that's still going debuts in uh, February 97. I'm about to spark out, so I've been Bob Bam, but this has been the February 1997 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, 